The scientific revolution starts now. My name is Ogiogus, and I'm autistic. And autistic people often have a special interest, a topic or a subject that just beguiles us and intrigues us and that we become obsessed with. And sometimes we spend our whole life on that special interest. My autistic special interest is the fundamental nature of reality, which I have been exploring since I was 10 years old. When I was 10 years old, I had an, an event that made me start questioning the nature of reality, and I've never stopped since then. And one of the things very early on that became clear is if you want to understand what reality is, got to understand what's in here, got to understand the mind and consciousness, how we perceive reality, the instrument by which we access this reality. So sometime in the 90s, my, uh, my attention all focused onto consciousness, and I've been pursuing consciousness, trying to understand it uh, ever since then. Um, I am sometimes in academia and sometimes out. I'm way more comfortable outside of academia, uh, most likely because of my autism. It's very hard for me to uh, socialize, especially with complicated. Uh, I can't work an office job. You know, I can't have a boss. So academia was never a very good fit for me. Um, and so I've had positions here and there. I was most recently a visiting scholar at Harvard. Um, but uh, mostly I write books, which gives me the freedom to explore the ideas uh, the way that I want to. And so I recently finished a book. Uh, I'm a mathematical neuroscientist. My PhD is from Boston University. I recently finished uh, a book about consciousness with my co-author, uh, Dr. Saigadam. He also is a mathematical neuroscientist. We went to school together at Boston University. Um, and as I said, so he wrote this book. We thought we're finally able to explain how consciousness works, and that's what we did. <laughs> Before we go on, I've got to know, what is this event that made you change the way you fundamentally see reality when you were a kid? I was in the shower and watching this, the water spiral down the drain. I was 10 years old, and I started thinking about um, existence. And I can still remember it very clearly because it, it led to panic, what I call it existential panic. It was my first episode of existential panic. My life is kind of defined by increasingly intense episodes of uh, existential panic. The first one was in that shower when I was 10 years old. I suddenly thought, well, something had to have made me and then something had to have made that something, you know, that something had to have made earth and something had to made the thing that made earth. And I did this infinite regress. And at 10 years old, when I came to the bottom of it, I thought, the only thing that can explain this is, is impossibility. This is impossible. I can't be here. I, I can't exist. There's no way I can exist, but I'm here. And, and I just had a moment of existential panic. And ever since then, I've been trying to unpack, unpack that, <laughs> that feeling, that experience I had in the shower so, so very long ago. Mm. That's interesting because it does feel impossible. You look around at the variety of organisms and creatures that occupy the earth. You look at the biochemistry of it, you start to dig down into something like the bacterial stator, the, the motor that it, they use to propel themselves. Mm -hmm. And it becomes 
an intractable problem to explain how it all fell together. And I've been looking a lot at the origin of life recently, and that's a, a terribly confusing place because it's impossible to know. It's an event that is dictated to have happened in the deep past. People are very concerned about it. And everyone at the end of the day just has to kind of throw their hands up and say, well, we'll just never really know. And that's weird. That's a weird place to live yes. in, to accept may, that it we has happened. Ev- we may not ever know the exact uh, event. Was it, you know, Bob that went to Charlie's house and that made Amy appear as a the first organism? We may not know, like, the details. This exact chemical combination happened, you know, on this part of the Earth. But I, I think at some point we'll know the, the class of chemical reactions, the class of dynamics that probably were there. You know, I, I, I think that will that will be resolvable. I I imagine, I hope, I I suspect. (laughs) I think that the way that I've been looking at it most recently is the gradual emergence from spontaneous chemical reactions. Do you know Nick Lane's work? I do not. So Nick Lane is a biochemist and like all scientists, he has a tendency to look at the universe through the lens of his field of study. And so he studies the origin of life through a biochemical lens and makes a really compelling case that it's the reactions that are spontaneous that occur even in the absence of cells. And those reactions appear to have an intrinsic tendency to happen and happen more and more. And then as you gradually come together with more and more of these abiotic precursors, the emergence of life comes from the propagation of the chemical reactions that would happen even in the absence of life. And I feel like that might feed into your understanding of consciousness as this continuum. Well, so actually I have a lot to say about what you just said. To cut to the heart of that biochemical framing, to go even more abstract and, and, and deeper into it, there's two broad classes of dynamics, physical dynamics in reality. There's physics, the way of matter, but there's also mind, the way of mind, purpose. There's purposeful dynamics and there's purposeless dynamics. Physics studies the purposeless dynamics and the physicists imagine that's everything. You know, physicists, that's what they're deep down in. And so they think the, 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 the quantum mechanics and the protons and electrons, that's reality. That's half of reality. That's the way of matter. That's purposeless dynamics. The class of dynamics we find in minds is a whole different set of dynamics. They do not intersect with the dynamics of matter. Dynamics of mind and dynamics of matter, they are separate except for one parameter, one variable. There's only one thing that connects these two classes, time. Time only exists when the way of mind and the way of matter intersect. That's how you know they are intersecting because there is, in fact, time. So those early chemical reactions. The chemical reactions that matter are chemical reactions that give rise to purpose. At some point in the past, there was the first purposeful reaction and that gave rise to life. And then at some later point, we talk, this is where our book, uh, Journey of the Mind comes into play. At some point, first there was life a long time ago and the original life was aimless. It was probably something floating in the water, just sucking up nutrients as it went by or maybe something on a rock basking in the sun or absorbing nutrients or even just electrons to the rock floating around aimlessly the mind came into being when the very first uh purposeful mentally purposeful uh chemical reaction came into play it was probably some 
uh, single molecule. There probably are probably a pair of molecules if it really comes down to it. Probably some kind of shape-shifting sensor molecule on the membrane. Uh, there had to have been a membrane. There had to have been a membrane creature before a mind could come into existence. There had to be a clear sense of inside and outside. But once you had something like that, probably a shape-shifting molecule that maybe reacted to sunlight. You know, it gets hit with sunlight, it changes the shape. Very simple thing. And that change shape triggers a flagella or some simple movement thing. Now you have locomotion. If that was tied to, to, to uh, an image, now you've got the first mind. It perceives light and it moves. That's the start of the way of mind made out of pieces of matter, made out of molecules, aimless molecules, but they put the aimless molecules together in a particular configuration and purpose begins and the mind begins. This, go ahead. Well, before we started filming, you mentioned in response to our, I think last week's video with Dr. Blackmore, that you had a completely different conception of consciousness. And I think it would be really interesting to start there and have you lay out your idea for us uh, with the luxury of detail that it deserves. And then maybe we can get back to some of these questions because these are topics we think about all the time and we're, we're really excited to explore them some more. But I want to hear your idea in full first. Thank you, Shiloh. I'd love to talk about consciousness. So this is from, from our book, Journey of the Mind, that I wrote with uh, Dr. Saigadam. So... Consciousness, in my mind, is the greatest cosmic mystery that humans have been presented with. That is, I think, uh, even more fundamental and more interesting than, you know, where did the Big Bang come from? You know, uh, what is time? I think the answer to time is that it's the intersection of the way of matter and way of mind. But in terms of the deepest questions, I think, how are we aware of our own awareness? How are we aware of our own existence? To me, that is the biggest mystery and it has been cracked. It has been solved. We will explain it to you right now, mathematically and physically. But to do so, we need to start out by disabusing you of two common fallacies. The biggest reasons why people do not understand consciousness, the, the biggest reason why people always end up in these dead ends, they follow these red herrings, they just, these, these mental cul-de-sacs where you feel like you always end up, well, how can physical matter be conscious? It can't be. Oh, it's a hard problem. The reason you end up in these cul-de-sacs is because you're starting out with wrong assumptions. Let's clear those up right now. The mind is activity. The mind is not a thing. If you want to know one thing to help you understand how the mind works, how thinking works, how consciousness works, it is this. Thinking is an activity. Mm. It is very hard for people to think about things in terms of activity. In fact, I would even suggest that the number one fallacy across all of science is mistaking activities for things. Yes. To all, <laughs> yes. All that's science. like, oh, that's, like guys, the, that's, how, that's why we started this show. <laughs> that is, yes, Alan. I am, yes, so you're, you're one of the first people I've ever heard say that on this show, by the way. It is, without prompting. We, we usually without have heavy to, prompting. We usually have to get this out of <laughs> oh, the way no, no, with no, no, every no. scientist firsthand, and it's very painful, especially physicists. But yes, carry on. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm just so excited. You got to think in terms of dynamics if you understand reality. Physical reality as well as mental reality, it's dynamics, it's activity. And, and our brains are designed to think in terms of things. The consciousness itself, the dynamics of consciousness is designed to make us think in terms of things. So our, our minds naturally lead us to these, these wrong ways of thinking, which is why we get stumped on consciousness. And I, I just want to point out, 
all the greatest scientists suffer from this. Physicists used to think that heat was a liquid, a substance mm. called caloric that just flowed around. Uh, uh, chemists used to think that combustion, that the, the burning of things was uh, a substance called phlogiston. That phlogiston was hidden inside matter and it got released and that turned into flame. Uh, biologists thought that uh, life was due to Elan Vital. They, each of these cases, they thought it must be a thing. Let's find that thing, Elan Vital, caloric, phlogiston. Now we know in all three of these cases, what it's not a thing, it's the collective activity of a large scale dynamic system. It's the activity of the molecules that gives us heat. It's the chemical reactions of large scale molecules that give us combustion. It's the large scale dynamics of life, uh, of biology that are giving, uh, that are producing life, not some magical thing inside. And as we will see, exactly the same with consciousness. Consciousness is not a thing. Everybody's looking for where is that magical neuron? Where is the magical structure? Where is the magical energy uh, that's causing this? Looking for the magical thing. There is no magical thing. It's going to turn out to be exactly like combustion, like life itself, like heat, collective activity. Hey guys, really quick before we get to the rest of the conversation, we are supported by Patreon donations. And so if you like what we do, if you enjoy the conversations, if you want to see more from us, if you want to see in-person conversations, consider coming over to our Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash In return, you get the episodes early every week. You get to join our Patreon-only section on the Discord. And you get to hang out with us once a week on Sundays where we learn to have in-depth conversations in a large group. Share the podcast talk to us, engage. It really helps us grow. It's the thing that people look at when they decide whether to do this show or not. If you like what we do, figure out a way to support it in any way you can. And in the meantime, enjoy the conversation. All right. So we got to think, if we want to understand consciousness, got to think in terms of activity. Second big fallacy, the second big stumbling block that makes it hard to understand consciousness. The mind is hierarchies of dynamics, levels of dynamics. If you're mathematically minded to be a little more specific, it's recursively hierarchical. So there's a dynamic within a dynamic, within another dynamic, within another dynamic. Ultimately, there's going to be four layers of dynamics in the human mind. The top two layers are what are going to produce consciousness, a weird way of thinking that we're going to have to think about multiple levels of dynamics operating simultaneously. A little weird, but we can do it. We can do it. The metaphor uh, just to help, if you want like a very visual metaphor of like layers and, and, and how to think about this, imagine a street cleaner, a guy whose job is to go and clean the streets of the city. And at any given moment, he's deciding what to sweep. I might sweep here. I might sweep here. He has some control, but he's also influenced by two, the dynamics above him and the dynamics below him. The dynamics below him. Restaurants, for example, will have more trash by the, the, the nature of because of food and people walking and throw trash around. So he will do more sweeping around the restaurants. That's lower level dynamics. He's not controlling it. It's happening at a lower level than him, but it influences his activity at the higher level. There's a government who he, he works for, has hired him, and they might say, go spend more time cleaning the rich neighborhoods back bay here in Boston and stay away from the poor. You know, you can spend less time on the poor neighborhoods. So he's getting dynamics above that are influencing where he sweeps, dynamics below, but there's still, he's got the main control. I'm going to sweep here or sweep here according to the, the governing dynamics above me and the physical dynamics below me. A good way to think about what's happening in the mind. All right, let's jump right in to three laws of consciousness. These are physical and mathematical principles that 
apply to all forms of consciousness anywhere in the universe, whether it's a hamster or a fish or you and me or a city. We're going to show how cities can become conscious and they must become conscious if you have a physical explanation of consciousness. How there can even be possibly cosmic beings that are also conscious. We'll explore those things. But the first level, the first law of consciousness is this all conscious states are resonant states. There is a magical activity. There's not a magical thing that causes consciousness. There is a magical activity, a magical dynamic. That dynamic is called resonance. What is this magical resonance that's responsible for consciousness? Resonance is the physical embodiment of consciousness. Whenever you have a conscious experience in your brain, neural resonance is taking place. What is this resonance? It's a resonance between an expectation, a prediction, what you think is going to happen, what you're expecting to see. A resonance between an expectation and facts, the input, what you're perceiving, what you're sensing, the facts on the ground. The facts on the ground resonate with the expectations in your brain. These are two separate dynamics that resonate together. When they resonate together, it synchronizes their activity, it prolongs their activity, and it amplifies their activity, it strengthens it. So imagine a cello and a bassoon playing the same note at the same time. You get resonance. The two sound waves merge and they strengthen and they last longer. You hear when two are playing together, it lasts longer, it's a little stronger. That's what's happening in your brain between an expectation and the facts on the ground whenever we have a conscious experience. The second law of consciousness, only resonant states with features, with features can become conscious. In our brain, there are some resonant states that do not become conscious. Those physically neural resonant states that do not become conscious do not have features. What is a feature? Each of our modes of perception, vision, hearing, taste, smell, they each have different physical features. For sight, it's color, it's shape, it's uh, brightness, it's texture. These are features. These features are encoded in the dynamics of resonance. You have to have features to have consciousness. And again, there's, for example, in our brain, there's a, uh, an, our navigational system has a head-centered system and it has an object-centered system. And those things do, these two systems resonate, but we are not conscious of it. We don't have a word the way we do for seeing or hearing for our head-centered system matching up with our object-centered system. It's because even though it's resonating, two different systems, two different dynamics are resonating, there's no features. So we are unaware of it. Only resonant states with features are capable of becoming conscious. The third law of consciousness, and this is a big one. This was the big stumbling block. And I, I personally, this is one I didn't figure out. The guy that figured this out is Steven Grossberg at Boston University. I'll talk about him later. He is the greatest living scientist. He's at least as big as... Uh, Albert Einstein and Isaac Newton, and because he did the work of both of them, I'd even say he's certainly in the running for biggest, greatest scientist of all time. He figured this out, not me, that conscious uh, resonant states in the brain can resonate together. This means we can have multiple conscious states at the same time. Specifically, for example, 
I'm looking at uh, this microphone. I think you can see it. Yes, you can see it there. So uh, at the same time, uh, I'm scratching and I can hear it. So I'm looking at it and I'm hearing it. One part of my brain is resonating on the sound. Another part of my brain is resonating on the sight. Those two separate resonances resonate together. This is how consciousness works. We have multiple modules in our brain. Each module that's capable of resonance with features is capable of a conscious experience. And they're all competing to take conscious control of our brain. That's why we call it in our book, the consciousness cartel. The mental, our mental economy is governed by a consciousness cartel. There's a small set of modules that are all competing constantly to take control of the mind. So like I see this microphone and the microphone is trying to take over. The resonance from the microphone is trying to get all the other resonance. It's trying to capture my audio resonance. It's trying to capture maybe my smell resonance, my planning resonance, um, but other resonance too. If, if I hear somebody right there say, hey, the house is on fire, that audio resonance in my audio what module is going to compete with this visual resonance for this. And the audio is going to win out and my vision will then take over and I'll look over there and I'll see as well as hear whatever the, the, the emergency cry is over there. So our brain has multiple resonant states that resonate together. That's how, why when we watch a movie, for example, we hear it and see it and think about the meaning and it's all seamless. It seems like a single conscious experience, but behind the scenes, there's actually multiple synchronized resonant states in our brain. Let me give um, one more metaphor to help you visualize all of this abstract stuff. And then I'm going to add on one more thing, and that should be enough of an explanation. But if I'm going too long, you guys can, can certainly interrupt me. But, but let me at least give you this metaphor to help you visualize all this. So if you want to picture how consciousness was working in our brain, the example I like to use is George Floyd. Uh, he was the gentleman that was killed by police officers in Minnesota on Memorial Day in, in 2020, led to massive eruption of protests around the country. So here's the question, because this is the same question that applies to consciousness. How did this gentleman, George, uh, George Floyd, whose name was known by virtually nobody in the United States, so if you take the entire population of the United States, on the morning of Memorial Day, almost nobody knew his name, but by the and within the next 24 hours, at least half of the country had heard his name. And within a few more days, the country was erupting in protests. People were marching. Activity happened across the entire country as a result of this one man in this one nondescript place that nobody had ever heard of before. Nobody even knew about. Nobody knew this guy. And yet this event in this little place managed to cause the entire nation of America to erupt with activity. How did this happen? The answer explains how consciousness works too. Here's what happened. There was an event on the ground in Minnesota. George Floyd was killed by police officers. There was people standing by with their cameras. They took some pictures. They posted on social media. This is like the raw sensation that comes into our brain, seeing something. In our brain, when it first processes sensory information like vision, it forms a representation. That representation is not conscious. It does not resonate. Our brain first puts together a potential representation, but it's not resonating with anything yet. So we're not aware of it. It's pre-conscious. So this is the same thing as people videotaping George Floyd getting strangled by the police officer, posting it on social media. The next step is newspapers, cable shows like CNN, somebody on CNN's desk say, hey, I see on social media that it looks like some black gentleman 
uh, might have been killed by a white police officer. Should we look into this? The next stage is bottom-up, top-down matching. This is what happens in our brain. This is what happens on a media desk. This potential story, this input, hey, this man was killed in Minnesota, attempts to get matches matched with an expectation. In the case of the media, it's, hmm, we've done lots of stories on white police officers doing police brutality uh, to black folk. So this seems like it might be a match. Is it a match? This is what happens in our brain. Here's a sensory input. I see a microphone. Uh, I was expecting to see a microphone. I've seen microphones before. If my expectation and the facts match, this resonates. This is what happens when CNN then says, okay, we're going to report on this as an example of a white officer doing police brutality, uh, racist police brutality. And it appears on CNN. It appears on the Chiron at the bottom of the screen. This is resonance. This is resonance. When this happens in the brain, the resonating module then tries to resonate tries to synchronize this resonance throughout the rest of the brain. What happens in George Floyd's case is all the different media outlets now are also evaluating this story. Is this a good story worth running? And different media outlets will have different criteria. They'll have different expectations. Fox News is going to evaluate it differently than CNN is. That's going to evaluate it differently than People Magazine, than, than The Economist. They're each going to have their own expectations of what is a story and how this matches. And then it'll resonate. Now, in the case of George Floyd, everybody resonated on it. All the media outlets started reporting on it, and it started resonating with each other. This is what happens in our brain. One module, the visual, in this case, the visual what module, resonates and starts taking over or, or synchronizing with the rest of the brain. Now, my audio modules tuned into this. My smell modules tuned into this. All my modules, all of my consciousness is focused on the microphone, just like all the media is focused on George Floyd. And it causes feedback loops. So... The media sends reporters out to get more information, which brings more information out, stabilizing, prolonging, amplifying the resonance, the media resonance. Same thing happens in our brain. I'm focused on this. I might even reach out and touch the microphone, which is like reporters getting sent out to the scene. This is creating more input, which is still stabilizing this conscious experience of the microphone, which is stabilizing the conscious experience of the story of George Floyd. And what will it take to knock this out of my consciousness, just like with George Floyd? A, a, a new input, a new story that is more compelling and of greater interest eventually knocked George Floyd off the media and a new story came on. Same thing here. Uh, if my wife uh, calls me for, uh, for for dinner, then that's going to knock this off my consciousness and all of my conscious, my modules are going to reorient on her calling me for dinner and then I'm going to get up and go for dinner. So that is a way to visualize uh, this process uh, physically of what's happening. Uh, with consciousness. Now, let me add just one last thing. Uh, I, that was a long stretch, so I'm sure you guys want to get going with some questions. I do want to point out, I have one more explanation I can do maybe later, but this explanation I just shared explains consciousness in vertebrates, in fish, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, including primates. It does not explain our form of consciousness. Humans have a different form of consciousness than every other creature on earth and all the other all the other vertebrates only vertebrates are conscious invertebrates including insects are not conscious because they don't have representations they don't have resonance um, we humans have self consciousness we have self awareness that requires an extra physical dynamic in addition to the ones i just described 
maybe I can talk about that in a few minutes, but I know I just unloaded quite a bit. So uh, happy to answer any questions or, or, or you know, talk about anything. I, I love that you paired the experience of unifying external reality with internal reality as the defining feature here. And one thing that just struck me is that it seems like the ancient peoples understood this really well because their myths seem to center around the border between the chaos that would be occurring in their absence, in the absence of the order bringing states and the language and the culture, and that the fixation, the absolute obsession with maintaining that order is fundamental to the realization that your conscious experience, your resonance with the external environment depends upon it. And yes. yeah, I think that's, I don't know if that's a question really, but that's more of a comment. I, I wonder if you've, have you thought much about mythology, how it plays into the story that you're telling as well? Yes. I, I think ancient peoples were unconscious. I don't think they have consciousness the way we do. They would have been incapable of grasping the notion of the hard problem of the idea that consciousness is some unsolvable thing because to have self-awareness you need sophisticated language you need sophisticated ideas ideas of philosophy ideas of science things like that they didn't have their sense of consciousness was much more immediate much more like animals much more like i am here talking about structure the structure of the world was the structure of their inside of their mind. That's how they saw it. Like that, that ancient writers, like even Plato talking about the, the state, the, 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 the form of the perfect state. And he always compared it uh, to a mind because for them, that was a mind, you know, that the, the, the order of the physical reality they experienced as their, as their inner order because they did not yet have that extra layer of self-awareness. It, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of civilization. It's like they, they hadn't alienated themselves from themselves yes, yet. That, that's it. That's right. They, 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 they didn't have enough. They didn't have enough dirty civilization <laughs> well, to carry, carry them away from their natural state. <laughs> this is a little bit of a basic reference, but isn't the allegory of the cave a demonstration of the, that realization? I think so. I, I've always viewed that allegory as like a kind of a metaphor for becoming aware of your own awareness, you know, becoming aware of your own thoughts that, that, you know, you become aware. I have thoughts, but these thoughts are sitting inside some other bigger, bigger thing. I mean, that it, it was early ideas like Plato's cave that are the first signs, in my opinion, of self-awareness coming. You have, we have to build up the language. We have to build up the concepts. We have to be able to share with another person. The idea of looking inside yourself, of like, how do I feel? How do I really feel? You know, the notion, how do I really feel? That's a very modern notion. You, know, you need a lot of linguistic structure and conceptual structure for something as, as simple as that. You know, if you look, if you look at like the early literature, even like Oedipus, uh, the, the, the Aeschylus, uh, the, the, the early Greek who wrote about uh, Oedipus, like they believed in fate. They believed that in predestination that we didn't have choice. We didn't have agency. This was an unintelligible concept to the ancients that you actually had individual purpose. It just wasn't part of their awareness. It had to be built up. You know, it had, it had to be created. I mean, that's what Western philosophy uh, 
the, the, the notion of a mind body problem was an invention. You know, they, that, that wasn't like a description of how people felt before that, that was in part, Descartes, I think was the one that first kind of pushed that. Certainly during that era, like that was an invention that was resulting from so much word, so many words, so many books, so much language happening. I mean, what's really interesting is once you have a conception of yourself, you also have this really unique ability to modify the self. And that seems like the modern, well, I don't know how modern it is. I mean, you read, say, the Stoic philosophers, they're also keenly aware that you can shape yourself and you can change your circumstances by, you know, where the where the uh, the rubber meets the road, essentially. I mean, that intersection between physical reality, that's what's so strange about being a conscious entity is that you can modify physical reality. So the mind does intersect at that point. Yes. And once you have that self, so you think that that sense of, are you kind of on the Julian James side of things, that the sense of self emerged relatively recently in human beings? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very, very recent because it required language. Maybe I can talk a little bit about the physical basis of self-awareness. And this is another reason why consciousness has been so hard to understand, so hard to crack, because it needs yet another level of understanding that isn't the kind of thing that you would pick up in a philosophy course or a physics course. It's just not a natural way we're, we're taught to thought about, think about the mind. So I mentioned that there's a hierarchy of dynamics in the mind. So there's four stages of thinking on earth, four stages of thinking in the human mind. Let me walk through them. This is profound. This gets to the ultimate structure of reality, the ultimate purpose of reality, and reveals a great cosmic cycle, physical cosmic cycle in reality. If we follow these ideas, to their natural, logical, and empirical conclusions. There's four stages of thinking. The first stage of thinking was the transition from purposelessness, from pure physics, aimless physics, to purposefulness, to the first purpose, the first goals and objectives in the universe. So the simplest minds on Earth are all molecule minds. The thinking elements, the physical thing doing the thinking in the simplest minds on Earth are individually identifiable molecules. Uh, for example, this, the simplest mind on Earth is the mind of an archaea. An archaea is a form of life. It's a lot like bacteria. In fact, they were mistaken for bacteria for the first 300 years of us having a microscope. The first 300 years of modern biology, they, they thought archaea were the same as bacteria. Archaea are the oldest form of life. They're the simplest form of life. Their minds are individually identifiable molecules. The nanoarchaea, which is the smallest living organism, uh, has about 10,000 molecules in its mind. We can count them if we want to. We can identify them. We can see its complete molecular mind. Molecule minds think in terms of points. So, for example, the, the, uh, the uh, haleoarchaea, haleoarchaea seeks out sunlight. It's a little single-cell creature that lives in salt water. It's very tolerant of salt, lives in a great salt lake. It's the only creature that can survive in the highly saline lake of, um, of the Great Salt Lake, um, it moves towards the light. It has perhaps the simplest living mind on Earth right now. It has uh, some simple molecules that react to light, and when they react, they trigger a flagella. So this simple combination of a light-sensitive molecule that changes its shape, and it triggers a, a set of hundreds of molecules that 
wave a, a little flagella. That's the simplest mind. All the single-celled creatures are molecule minds. So bacteria, archaea, protozoa, molecule minds, simplest minds on Earth. That's what got thinking going in the universe. That's how thinking emerged from chaos. Stage two, the second stage of thinking are neuron minds. The individual thinking element in a neuron mind is a neuron, an individual molecule mind. Every neuron is a self-contained mind. Every neuron is an independent mind. It is a molecule mind. So I mentioned earlier that the dynamics of consciousness, the dynamics of mind are hierarchical, they're recursive. So we have a mind of a neuron, which is now interacting with other neurons. So there's two layers of dynamics, the dynamics within the neuron, and now the dynamics between the neurons. Invertebrates, like jellyfish, insects, worms, they all have neuron minds. Their brain, not all of them have brains. The hydra, for example, it's like a little jellyfish, does not have a brain. It has neurons. It has a network of neurons, but it does not have a centralized uh, brain. These, those don't start till the flatworms. There's roundworms, they don't have brains either. Then flatworms, they have brains. And then insects definitely have brains. So neurons, no, sorry, neuron minds have a network of neurons. That network is the primary thinking element in a neuron mind. So it has thinking happening inside neurons, just like it happens inside a bacterium or a beside, inside an archaea, but it also has thinking across these neural uh, pathways. Neuron minds think in terms of shapes. Molecule minds can think of points. They can conceive of points. The dynamics deal with points. The dynamics in the neuron mind can deal with a variety of shapes. But what they don't deal with are objects. To do that, we need the third stage of thinking, which are module minds. The thinking unit in a module mind is a neural network. A module in a module mind is another independent mind. It's an independent neuron mind. So neuron minds are made up of molecule minds. A molecule mind is made up of neuron minds. So now we have three recursively hierarchical kinds of dynamics happening simultaneously. There's activity happening in the neurons, there's activity happening between the neurons, and there's a whole other level now of activity between networks of neurons, three levels of activity. This is what it takes to think about objects as stable things out in space that we can interact with, that we can control, that we can use for things. So even insects, insects cannot think in terms of objects, but vertebrates can. All the vertebrate minds, fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals, they all have module minds. Module minds are all conscious. They all have the dynamics of consciousness that I described before. Top-down, bottom-up matching within a module. Uh, the modules that have top-down, bottom-up resonance are capable of conscious consciousness. There are many modules in the mind that we use all the time that are not capable of consciousness. A good example is the how module, the targeting module. I am reaching to point to the camera. Um, I'm using my how module. The how module is unconscious. I am conscious of the target. I'm reaching towards you. I'm reaching towards the camera. I can be conscious of my hand. My hand is moving through space, but I can am not conscious of the act of doing there. To see this, try to explain to somebody how to push a button in an elevator. 
what can you do besides say press here? What if you say that and they, they press their nose? What could you possibly tell them to guide them? No, you need to tighten your wrist muscle or you need to extend this muscle here and you need to turn your wrist. We're not conscious of it. The how module is unconscious. The reason it's unconscious, there's no resonance. The way the how module works, it's driving two sets. It has two sets of dynamics like our conscious modules, but it's driving them to zero. It's got a dynamic of the target and a dynamic of where your hand is. It's driving them to zero. So we're not conscious of it. It's constantly changing. The dynamic is constantly changing. So it's no use of us to be aware of that. I'm going I'm to actually have to try that out next time I'm in a hotel and somebody asks me to, uh, to push, uh, the, yeah. push number five or something. I'll say, how? So I'm, I'm trying. How? I, my finger hits my nose. Like, help me, help me. <laughs> so the, the final stage of thinking, and here we're going to get to self-awareness at last, the final stage of thinking is only found in humans, and it is called the supermind. The supermind. What are the thinking elements in a supermind? You and me, Shiloh and Anastasia and Ogi, we are each <laughs> thinking elements within the supermind. What binds us together? How does the supermind have dynamics? Mental dynamics, it is language. Language binds individual human brains together into a supermind. We are designed to live our lives to function within a supermind. Our brains, only human brains, this does not apply to the primates, are designed to be network routers. We're designed to function in a network of brains. Without a society without a community, a human brain is about as useful as a router without a network. It's useless. This is seen in the fact that if you raise human beings without language, if you keep a child in a silent environment, not only will they never acquire speech, they won't be able to function. They won't be able to survive. They won't be able to take care of themselves in the most basic way. We are designed to acquire all of our mental abilities, all of our capacities through language. We are designed to function within a bunch of talking minds that are talking and talking all the time. That's what we're designed for. The way the dynamics of this are really identical to the dynamics of the way individual neurons talk as well, or the way individual molecules talk in the molecule brain. This is a consistent physical dynamic. We see it at the molecule mind level, the neuron mind level, the module mind level, and now at the super mind level of us. So self-awareness, the fact that we can talk about a concept like qualia, that we can talk about the, ex the de physical details of our experience, that, 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 that what looks like a velvet curtain behind you guys looks a rich state of blue. There's this qualia blue. I'm experiencing a blueness, which is different than, than redness. Uh, how is this possible? How am I able to talk to you guys about my awareness, my inner experience? Well, as I said, it takes a lot of, it takes a very advanced supermind. Our supermind has been developing ever since civilization began. Basically, since writing began, writing is very much tied to when agriculture began, those went hand in hand and that the whole set of inventions and revolutions associated with us planting seeds in the ground and harvesting, uh, having to monitor time, having to talk to each other about the process, all of that gave birth to our modern superminds, the biggest uh, asset was written language, which allowed supermind, supermind elements to communicate over vast distances and over vast periods of time. How does this play with self-awareness? Why do I need a civilization just to be aware of my own thoughts? It's because 
the dynamics of self-awareness involve two big sets of dynamics. The first set of dynamics is our consciousness cartel that we already talked about. It's me being visually aware of this microphone. Resonance, I see a microphone, I hear a microphone too. This is resonating. This is the consciousness cartel. On top of the cart consciousness cartel, only in humans are language dynamics flowing between the minds. I wasn't born with knowledge of the word or concept, self-awareness. That wasn't genetically programmed somehow that at age 12, I would become self-aware, that I would understand that you know I can be aware of the qualia of blue. No, that comes from the supermind. The supermind had to develop, the supermind had to develop philosophy, it had to develop a notion of mind-body problem, it had to develop the notion of self-awareness, it had to develop the notion of qualia, had to develop neuroscience, all these complicated ways of talking. And even then it wasn't enough. Most people who talk about consciousness, Susan Blackmore is, is she's not behind, she is the front line. Most people who go to tackle about consciousness end up in that place because the seer mind has not yet equipped us with the insights, concepts, and knowledge. I'm now sharing this. Hopefully these ideas will start going out in the seer mind and maybe the future generations, this will be automatic for them. They'll be, oh yeah, of course, there's a consciousness cartel, there's resonance. We're self-aware because the dynamics of the seer mind between the minds is cycling with our consciousness our cartel. Our consciousness cartel gives us meaning. Our consciousness cartel knows this is a microphone. This is what a microphone feels like and sounds like. Our consciousness cartel knows that. The supermind has a word, self-awareness. And what happens is that word that's circulating the dynamics of the supermind gets into a loop, a feedback loop, a recursive feedback loop with our experience of something. So we have the word, uh, say microphone, the word microphone, which we take from the serum mind, it resonates in our, specifically in our cortex. There's a resonance between the word microphone and this experience of the microphone that gives us meaning. We attach meaning to this word, but it requires the super dynamics of language to loop through, to resonate with, our consciousness cartel dynamics so that we can become self-aware. So what is the goal? Is there one? Like why so did the universe do this? Kind of. I want to see, yeah, I want to see where, where Ogi takes it. So here's the amazing thing. And for me, this is utterly profound. I think this is the key to understanding reality and why we're here. And it's this, each of these transitions, to a new stage of thinking is very consistent. It always unfolds in the same way. The previous stage gets highly diverse. We see massive diversification. So in the molecule minds, there was rapid, uh, not rapid, there was extreme diversification of individual cells uh, before we went up to the neuron mind stage. And the same thing, neurons, individual neurons are incredibly diverse. A lot of people think that like there's a standard neuron, there's a prototypical neuron. No, every neuron is completely different. And this is by design. This is by intention. The more diverse the thinking elements, the greater the power of the thought. You're able to think more, remember more, have better planning. The, the diversity of the thinking elements contributes directly to the complexity and sophistication of the mental dynamics. Each time what we see is diversity of the thinking elements followed by love followed by connection, 
followed by compassion. The neurons decide to work together instead of individual bacteria fighting and competing, instead of uh, 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 amoebas fighting and competing, the amoebas actually do come together, form a super mind, form a super amoeba. That's what happened too at each stage. The same thing at the module stage. The modules learn how to talk to each other. How do modules talk to each other? Through representations. How do neurons talk to each other? Through signals. How do human brains talk to each other? Through language. Each time there was diversification. So we diversified as individual humans. Our diversity is a design strength. It's intentional and it helps make us smarter and it helps make us more compassionate. So what needs to happen? You're asking about where, what is all this for? Where does all this leave? Well, there's no physical limit on these new stages of purpose. In fact, my co-author Saiganam and I, we argue that we're seeing the first stages of consolidation of superminds, which would create, we would call it a hypermind. And how, how do hyperminds communicate through ideologies? So what we're seeing right now is it feels to us like massive chaos. What are the driving physical agents of this? The internet, certainly number one. We're all wired together. All of our ideas are flowing together at a new level. This is what we see historically right before a new transition, right before neuron minds appeared, right before module minds appeared, right before human superminds appeared. There is a lot of diversity. That's what we're seeing now. So many voices. Everybody wants their voice. Everybody wants it. This is what it will look like before we get to a new stage of thinking. The key piece is compassion, is love. We've got to learn to accept our diversity and love each other. Once we're accepting of everybody's diversity, that it's okay for you to be very different than me and have different ideas than me, that's all to the good, and we get along civilly, compassionately, that is when we know we'll be at the next stage and we'll finally have a hypermind. That's really interesting because I tend to think about this, Shiloh's heard me talk about this a lot, of the emergence of multicellularity in eukaryotes, which are nucleated creatures versus bacteria that are non-nucleated. And bacteria don't, we, we tend to think of them as living free in the environment where you stumble on a bacteria and that's the thing that you're interested in, but they tend to live in biofilms. And so these are deeply organized networks that appear to have the ability to communicate with distal parts of the biofilm. They have specialized structures, they have roles, they sacrifice themselves for the functionality of the biofilm because based off of oxygen permeability, the lower levels are dead and the upper levels are not, and yet someone is producing all of the scaffolding in order to create the structure. And it seems to me that multicellular creatures are the emergence of many of these small organizations coming together in a way that is compatible and agreeing to police what is incompatible. Because you said that the first cell has to have a membrane. And I'm yes. thinking immediately that first cell has a membrane, first organism has the identity of cooperative versus non-cooperative and the non-cooperative elements are removed in order to make the whole function better together. I think your 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 description of the bacteria biofilm where there seems to be some some level of specialization is a perfect metaphor for what we're experiencing right now in, in humankind that that that's bacteria moving towards a new stage 
you know, of multicellularity, but it's not yet figured out how to say, okay, all of these bacteria with these specializations, now let's unify our purpose and move over here. Like, you know, it's not, the, the, the biofilm is not getting up and doing something else, but that's kind of where we are now too, as humans, we're not able yet to kind of organize all of this into a mobile, you know, uh, purposeful, cohesive body, but this is the early stage of it. And what we're, the example of the biofilm is probably what was happening before multicellularity. You know? It just strikes me as being something that is longer than the life of an organism that each organism participates in. It's happening yes. to the biofilm the first time that it discovers that multicellularity works and then it encounters another biofilm that they can work together. And then eventually it encounters another biofilm. And now they all have different roles. And somebody's the skin, somebody's the digestive tract, somebody's the feeler, somebody's yeah. the motel unit. Yeah. And then you have this agglomeration of cells that are similar enough that they can work together. And but you see the, there the importance of diversity, even in what you just described. There has to be different for multiple ones to come together. They have to have been diverse to begin with. If they were all identical, they wouldn't be able to have different differential roles. Yeah, exactly. And so to me, it seems like the project is a, it seems like a multi-generational project that each organism is participating in. And so obviously there's great utility in being able to break it down along these four modules where you go, I really love that it is uh, four modules that are broken down along the dimensions, right? So the point mind is one dimension, the shape mind is two dimensions, the object yes. mind is three dimensions, the relational mind is four dimensions, and that's vital for understanding the the gradual complexity of the of the interactions. Yes, but I feel like that seed must be there right from the beginning because the the minds that are capable of surpassing their current limits are going to be the ones that are more successful for all of the basic needs of life. The accumulation of resources, the development of safety nets, the ability to persist for the next generation. And so I feel like it's something that's encoded already in the point minds and they just so haven't... Let me, let me give you something else to blow your mind here. So... <clears throat> You've set this up perfectly. So evolution, Darwinian evolution by natural selection, I would argue is a very narrow subclass of a greater class of evolutionary dynamics that we could really just consider as purpose. Purpose is evolutionary dynamics. Natural selection is just one temporary kind. Most evolution in the universe is not genetic. It's not natural selection. It's mental evolution. It's the evolution of mind. It's the evolution of these layers of mind. The supermind did not evolve through genetics. The supermind, self-awareness, our ability to be aware of ourself, which now we think is so precious, uh, the mystery of consciousness, that the fact that we are entranced with the mystery of consciousness is not a consequence of genetic evolution. Gene, there wasn't some genetic mutation that made us suddenly self-aware. It's the evolution of these mental dynamics. These mental dynamics, naturally, this is what I was trying to say about how these levels come about. It's not genetic. Ev genetic evolution had a role in the early levels. But from here on out, any ge genetic evolution, these new layers of thinking are going to unfold through a more sophisticated, far more broad set of evolutionary dynamics, which are the true dynamics. And there's no reason to think this stops. There'll be hyperminds, there'll be ultraminds. At some point, there will be 
purposeful dynamics that can unite galaxies, you know, maybe multiple galaxies. And so if there is a cosmic cycle, it would be this. I believe it is this, but I can't demonstrate it yet. <laughs> so this, there is this never-ending ladder of purpose. We keep creating new minds that have a greater scope of their ability to execute purpose. Right now, our minds have pretty much taken over the earth. The climate of the earth is under our control. Our, you know, we are the ones that are going to dictate the entire climate of our planet. Eventually, that might apply to our solar system. You know, maybe we'll have to get hooked up with other extraterrestrial minds. I don't know. Maybe we'll be able to do it on our own. Certainly past our solar system, almost certainly we'll have to bind with other minds. Why will this stop? If we get to the point where purpose can finally encompass galaxies, multi-multi-galaxies, can coordinate that. And again, this is the ladder of purpose. We don't see any physical limitation that would at some point stop this process. We've already seen it play out through four layers of dynamics. It looks like it's creating a fifth layer before our very eyes right now. That once you have these colossal cosmic sense of purpose, that will be able to influence what we consider the laws of physics. When you have purpose at a galactic scale, when you can manipulate you know, mass, the, the location of mass, location of energy, the speed, you know, the movement, all of that at galactic scales, it seems plausible that that would give you a chance at influencing the laws of physics. This then would be the great cosmic cycle. This would give humanity a role. Maybe we're going to be part of this rise. Maybe we'll get control of our climate, meet up with other extraterrestrials, rise all the way to one of these gods, godlike beings that are dictating the future physics. Maybe we won't. This is a wonderful thing. We have in this view of the universe, we have purpose, we have meaning. Each of us, what we do in our daily lives matters. It has it's going to influence the future of humanity which will influence the future of this mind that we're part of. Maybe we'll end up, you know, in a million years as part of one of these grand cosmic minds influencing reality on a massive scale. Maybe not. Maybe some other species will outcompete us, you know, from, from another planet. You know, all of these are possible. That's what's so wonderful looking at it this way. It gives all of us meanings as individuals. It gives us meanings as societies, as, as a species. Uh, and the future is unknown, not dictated. This view of the universe also gives us free will. Free will definitely exists when you've got a separate dynamics of purpose and a dynamics of purposelessness. And when you have a hierarchy of dynamics, that's how you break aimlessness. That's how you break predestination. That's how you break uh, having your future etched in stone is by having hierarchies of dynamics with loops. Now you can have free will and you can have free will even on a cosmic scale within this model, and yet everybody dies. This vision, even the gods one day will die. They'll be replaced by future gods. Future species like us will then start the journey. Some will become gods or join, you know, some will be join these gigantic collections of entities to become gods. And, and some will die off, uh, just like all the species on earth. So that, that is, I believe, what the available evidence suggests is the ultra fundamental nature of the universe. <laughs> First, I, I love it. This is the most <laughs> sane theory of consciousness I've ever heard before. I, I, I don't want to flatter you or anything, but it's 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 really comforting to hear this laid out in a coherent fashion. Shiloh's always, just before we have these conversations, he's like, I don't understand why people are so preoccupied w with this question. 
like it doesn't seem difficult and i think that intuitively both of us have this perception on consciousness like and nobody's ever codified it before but this is definitely codifying the way that i've thought about it instinctively it is yeah and it leads to one of my favorite subjects which is the birth of civilization and i am curious if you think well i'm curious i'm interested in this topic because i see the evolution of the minds and i'm very interested in what happens next obviously because i want out of the chaos that we're all experiencing and i i agree that something else and i think everybody that i talk to agrees that something else is in store for us that will alleviate that chaos and it has to do with a new mindset if you will and i'm curious what you make of the initial supermind that emerged this this initial self-awareness that emerged because i'm really fascinated with julian james's idea uh, i'm not sure about his timeline but i'm very interested in the idea that people originally experienced they were able to participate in language before they had that sense of self which is interesting because the way that you presented it language and the sense of self emerged together and i'm well, no, no, language had to get developed enough it had to de- in, in- get developed to include concepts of the self mm. for there to be a self. So it was first language, then so, language had to get developed over thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, really, uh, before before it, before language itself got advanced enough for the self. But that's really no different than the neurons in mammals getting developed enough for there to be, you know, monkeys and primates, you know, that the, 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 that the connectivity and the intermind dynamics have to reach a certain level of sophistication. That's true in, in all minds. And that was true with human language too. The human language itself, the dynamics of human language had to get sophisticated enough to support the emergence of a self. There's something too about that, which has to do with the environment and the technology, I would think. Where, so you have language, language develops, and at some point, you begin to have an internal state that's associated with the rise of civilization. But the sense of self is also something that allows you to develop a sense of free will, where before you do what is in your head and what is in your head is the voice of God or the voice of nature or whatever you want to call it, and you are subject to it, that must come at least in part from the fact that if you leave your tribe, you're going to die. And if you want to leave, you have to have a technological basis that is sufficient for you to be able to say, I'm not going to do what you tell me. And I never really hear people talking about that because people talk about language a lot. But if the differentiation of the self comes at around the same time as, let's say, agriculture, then you have the ability to go into the next valley and grow your own food and you're not dependent on your hole anymore. And so maybe those are more related than I hear people talking about, but I don't know if you've come across that at all. There's a lot of, it's important to keep in mind, there's a lot of dynamics that we're unconscious of that have been put in place over millions of years to make us come together. A good example is the campfire. We've had fi- humanity has had fires for at least two million years, which means we've had it, it, back then it was Homo erectus. It wasn't even Homo sapiens around yet, let alone Homo neanderthal. It was Homo erectus, then Neanderthal and, and sapiens. We all had fires. Fires, f- 
focus all of our attention in the same place. So what needs to happen for a super mind to emerge is shared attention, the dynamics of shared attention. Mm. So shared attention started with a shared gaze. It started in creatures long before humans or primates, just looking at another eye. Okay, first looking at an eye. Then there was uh, gaze following. You know, that creature looks over there. I look over there too. Now that's mind-to-mind dynamics. These need to happen. Superminds are way down the road, but these early dynamics need to happen to get us linked together. Then share gaze. We're both looking at the microphone. I see you looking at the microphone. Now I'm looking at the microphone. We're both looking at the microphone. And we're aware that the dynamics are, I know you're looking at it and I'm looking at it. That's why I'm looking at share dynamics. And it keeps going. Gesturing, you know, microphone, you know, microphone, like gesticulation, pantomiming, uh, Pointing, you know, chimpanzees do not point. Pointing is a biological thing. It emerges in all humans before the age of 12 months, suggesting that sometime in our past, we were communicating with hand gestures. Now we all point, we all automatically, we're born, inborn to follow points. Chimpanzees do not have this. Again, this is a- Dogs can do it though, which is kind of interesting. Oh, so interesting. Can, can't Coco the gorilla do it too? Isn't that how she talks? You, you can train gorillas, but- to do it, they're never great at it. Like they, they're not cons- <laughs> they're not super consistent of it. I mean, you can trainers have shown it, but it, it's work and it doesn't stabilize at any point. It's, it's an unnatural. It'd be like having us put you know do this on your head every day. <laughs> like, yeah, I can learn how to do that, but I'm going to forget after <laughs> forget after a while. Um, the language, but to get language going, you probably needed things like campfires just to get everybody in the same spot, to looking in the same place. Now we can start talking and we'll all hear the same words. Early caves, caves with paintings, they're usually in remote places like uh, like in China, they're, they're way up on a cliff and in South America, they're hard to reach places, suggesting there was something special. You bring them there and you look at the paintings, you're all together, shared attention, forced to look at the same things, forced to share a story, forced to share language. All these things were happening for hundreds of thousands of years to just physically get us together, to get our thoughts aligned, to get dynamics. And all of this is so unconscious now, but there's so many physical and mental dynamics that cause us to be together, to interact, to do things without, you know, even being aware that that that, that these things are influencing the way that we're acting and thinking with other people. One thing that's really interesting there is you have the ability to have a representation that everybody can focus on and agree upon. I read a really interesting uh, story, the paper that came out today, where they'd found uh, a stone carving from... I want to say 9,000 years ago that had a representation of a giant system of what they call kites. Uh, This is somewhere in the Near East, which were essentially funnels that they were herding animals off of a cliff into these pits and mass butchering them. But they had made a scale representation of it 9,000 years ago, they were thinking like this. They were organizing these, ex- they were looking at reality and, and putting it into these abstract objects that they could manipulate and hand around and all focus their attention on. And yes. I think that's really fascinating that that seems to have emerged maybe even before the sense of self. Yes, I think that's crucial. I, I think sharing physical objects as an attentional focus, another thing that's relevant to that is the birth of numbers, the birth of counting mm. and arithmetic. It started in Sumer. It was little clay, uh, little clay figures, little clay tokens 
about about this big. They they drop them on the table. They make a rattling sound. It's a physical things. You hold in your hand. You count them. They make sound. That's how math began. Was these little physical things that you carried around. And then they like the the progression of math was. Uh, then they wrap these tokens up in little clay envelopes. So you'd have say five bushels of grain. You'd have five little spheres, and you put them in a little clay wrapper. Then they would put. They realized they don't need this whole complicated wrapper filled with the tokens. Just push the tokens onto a seal. So then you'd have five grains of bushels. You'd push five circles. And so there'd be indentations of the five. That was the birth of numbers. But the whole progression was these physical objects that you could share and look mm -hmm. at and you could show to other people, hand to other people, all just to get our, the birth of our shared mind was these physical interactions. Just, just making things, making objects, having other people look at them, sharing them. That, that's, that's, that's how language got started with these physical things. And eventually we just did away with the physical and just, just used the words. But for tens of thousands of years, it must have been lots of little objects, you know, the little tokens for numbers, the little you know, statuettes, you know, the Venus of, of Willendorf, you know, the you know, buxom female fertility goddess body, you know, these, these things. And they drew attention together. That was the key thing is always just getting multiple minds to focus on the same thing and share the same thoughts, share the same experiences. I'm really curious about bugs, bees, ants. Bees have these representational dances they do, which communicate information about food sources. They have roles. Ants appear to have agriculture. They, they they do. They have some primitive form of agriculture and husbandry, right, with the aphids. And I was, I, I, I think you said that at the third stage in this complexity level, you get these module minds which are capable yes. of wrestling with objects. Yes. But that, um, and is that at the bug level, essentially? No. Okay. So bugs, like like the fruit fly and bumblebees, they have representations. So their brains did evolve representations, but they do not have top-down, bottom-up matching. They do not have two representations coming together to be matched. Uh, a representation, a rep they, have, they form a representation, and then that representation triggers activity. So insects, you could say, are impulsive. They have their input. They decode it. Uh, you know, that's an angry red square. That's a dangerous red square, you know, a dangerous patch of red go the other way and, and it's automatic uh in module minds there's more deliberation there's specifically it's disambiguation there's an understanding that maybe this representation is wrong we need to check it so there's other dynamics that validate that certify a, a representation that's what the process of resonance does resonance certifies this representation is indeed the correct one it looks like a microphone it is a microphone you know, it looks like a microphone. Oh no, it's chocolate. You know, instead, let's, let's <laughs> the best kind of microphone. <laughs> you don't even like chocolate. No, but somebody else would like it. <laughs> I'd take a pizza microphone personally. I I guess my my immediate instinctual objection is that we don't spend enough time to understand the language of bugs and birds and bees, and that we're missing something. Yeah, what's the stats on that? I mean, you mentioned it the other day. Like, how many species have we actually investigated? Have we sequenced? You were looking at um, funeral rites, right? Yeah, that I was, was looking really... to give you that. So, so, insect intelligence 
is very simple to explain. It's just this. Insects have an incredible diversity and sensitivity to inputs. They have incredible sense of smell. Their vision is not too bad. Uh, uh, taste, the, the chemical, mechanical receptors, very sophisticated, very sensitive. All that sensitivity to inputs feeds into a very small, narrow set of outputs. They have very few possible outputs and they're very rigid. You know, take off, land, left, turn left, turn right, you know, up, down, mate, pursue food. That covers about half of it. So there's very few actions it can take. So it's got a huge variety of inputs, very, very sensitive, you know, its own language of inputs, but very few things it can do with those inputs. So that's the secret to uh, insect intelligence. Lots great at distinguishing this smell from that smell, that vision from that vision, but it all goes to, do I fly towards it or fly away from it? You know, not, not much more sophistication than that. So that, that's, that's insect intelligence. <laughs> that's why they don't need, they don't need consciousness. Tell me about they the don't... butterfly funeral we saw the other day. <laughs> yeah, there was a real, we were, we, we go on these hikes uh, into the, there's a huge wilderness area that's maybe an hour away from our house. And we were crossing a bridge and there was a bunch of water seeps on the path. And there were all these butterflies that were hanging out. And most of them were just, you know, fluttering around like butterflies do. But there was a couple on the ground that were dead. And the other butterflies of that kind were gathering around them. And they were crawling on them. And they were investigating them. And you would come up and you would scare them away. And as you sat for long enough, they would come back. And they kept examining the butterflies that were dead on the ground and so they kept taking turns with it and they kept yeah they were taking turns with it and so one would fly away and then another one would come back and i was like look how many people do we have that are just studying this in the wild not in a laboratory condition but literally somebody whose job is to go and look at butterflies i would bet very very few and so my conception it, it of- almost felt like they were having some self-realization in the experience i mean it's difficult to not put that on things i understand but it it was very compelling experience and when you go into the literature and try to understand animal funerary rites it's not really something people are getting grants to look at somebody actually (laughs) just sent me something on twitter which was a publication about crow funeral rites which Mm. was the first one that i'd seen so crows get a lot of attention i think that it was uh tabula rasa who sent it to me so thank you for that but the the point still stands that it doesn't get a lot of attention and so i always am really concerned because we have this tendency when we talk about consciousness to place humans at the pinnacle of we are the epitome, we have reached some height, and we will continue to scramble up that mountain, and we will take mastery of the galaxy, and we will become gods. And we don't even know what the hell the butterflies are doing when they're gathering around <laughs> to look at the dead butterflies. I mean, like, if I can expand this just a little bit, I think that the curiosity stems from the idea that if human beings can expand our consciousness, if we can form the World Wide Web and we can form, I forget what you call it, hyper-conscious, uh, what do you call it, hyper-minds, yeah. are other species doing that too on their own timescales? And with well, pheromones and with things that we aren't paying attention to because we're not tuned to it. And so we have this illusion that we are the pinnacle and yet there are things happening that we just haven't taken the time to codify and understand because our innate predisposition is to believe that they are not like us. Well, first, I think you're absolutely right that, that 
we are not the pinnacle. We tend to think of ourselves as the pinnacle. Consciousness is not the end game. There's already been two major mental innovations since consciousness. Language and then the self, those are dynamics that emerged long after consciousness. And we're already building more on top of it. So, so it's already gone past us. You know, we, we, we think we're the pinnacle. It's already moved on. <laughs> you know, it's at the sewer mind. It's past, you know, left us behind and it's still building up towards us. So we matter. So do cats, you know, so do fruit flies. We all, we all matter. We all have our, you know, our level, our, our level of dynamics, but there's more above us, you know, so that I, I certainly agree with. I, I love the the story of the, the funerary rites of the of the butterflies. That sounds uh, wonderful. I recently saw a video. I think it's shared a lot on the internet. There's a, of turkeys uh, having a funeral for a dead cat. <laughs> like all, turkeys are all marching in a circle around a dead cat. It's very eerie and, and strange. There, it's like even a different species. You know, not just a you know funerary for their own species. It's some other creature. They all start marching. Around. What's going on there? It's <laughs> like the Turkey Bilderberg Conference. Well, it seems like it could be one of the things that death in particular seems like it could be the event which forges an awareness of self it's the first little rumblings of oh my god like is that gonna happen to me and i just wonder if that's where this all traces back to i mean obviously the fire and focusing attention and learning that um, I wanted to mention there's something really interesting I heard somewhere that human beings are the only primates that have these white areas around our eyes so that we can actually see where someone else is looking really easily. It, it allows us to have that sense of shared focus. But I, I, I wonder if Yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. It, it is believed, and I certainly think, we have all these innovations over the past few million years for shared attention, and the whites of the eyes are part of it. So it helps with the shared gaze, knowing that the other person is looking at you, helping find the other person's eyes. Uh, because we are in a super mind, it's very important for us to orient in other people's faces and know exactly what they're feeling and thinking and then trying to express to us. Yeah. It's like fear is the greatest motivator. And if you your buddy dies and you start thinking, oh, I mean, your first thought is like, oh, it sucks. He's dead. But then you're like, I, I, am I, is that going to happen to me? And and that's where you really start to start. That's where you just leap into this spiral of self thought and self awareness. And have I made the most of my time? And what should I be doing? And oh my god, uh, I just wonder if that isn't the first crystallization event. Well, here's the thing about this physical explanation of consciousness I just shared. It gives a very clear financial, uh, physical, very clear physical suggestion of what it would take to become immortal for our consciousness to go on forever. It's a matter of dynamics. It's a matter of maintaining the dynamics. And once you understand that, you realize it doesn't need to be based on neurons. Now, unfortunately, probably the worst thing for immortality <laughs> that could happen to the human species is the success of all this AI, these chat GBT these chatbots, um, that is not going to lead to consciousness or the mind or immortality. Those are just tools. Those are just extensions of ourselves. Those are not competing minds with us because they're digital. They're things. They're not made of dynamics. They're not analog. The only way a robot and artificial intelligence will become conscious is if we design it to be an analog system. And we need an analog system if we want to be immortal, if we want to transfer our mind to find a way for our consciousness to get onto 
material outside of our biological bodies, we need analog AI and mastery of that. And we haven't even began. So uh, probably nobody listening to this podcast, maybe some children listening, (laughs) teenagers listening to the podcast, maybe they'll have a shot. But since analog AI hasn't even been started yet, I don't know what the odds are for us being able to do this. But it's a very clear once you see how consciousness works physically, you could see how we could offload our mind. It would be extremely hard. This is not a matter of like 10 or 20 or 30 years of work. It needs to, we need to reconceive of AI, build new hardware, but feasible. Like for any particular thing, even right now, we could say, okay, this is what this would have to look like to get us our dynamic AI to allow us to offload our minds uh, onto material. Well, yeah, it would be it would be a biological entity at that point. Essentially, I, I understand if I understand you correctly, you're saying it has to be analog because resonance is fundamentally an analog property. Yes, that depends on yeah. continuum dynamics. It's from dynamics because the mind is activity. The mind is a flow. The mind is change in movement. It's not fixed zeros. So computers are based on information theory, specifically Shannon's information theory requires assumptions, requires it's zero or one, and these are fixed. It can't be zero or a half or a third or zero and one. Can't apply information theory does not apply if that's the case. You need fixed probabilities. If it's zero, one, zero now, it will 50% of the time change to one, zero, one, or whatever the case would be. Fixed probabilities, fixed units. The mind is nothing like this. The mind absolutely can be zero or one or zero one at the same time or zero and half and one or blue and zero and one. It can be anything. Like the, well, it operates on thresholds, right? And, and because there's d- dynamics happening simultaneously all over and the relationship of these, it's co- fundamentally different than, than a digital computer. I'm sorry, Shiloh. I, I was just saying that analog, an analog computer like a neural net operates on thresholds, right? There is a kick at which something will send a message or not. You have to be careful because neural nets are actually, the computer scientists have stolen that. Do you mean the computer science neural net? Or do you oh, mean I just a meant, I'm just talking about these levels of organization modules, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mod- module minds. There, um, you know, there's machine learning neural nets, which are entirely digital and nothing at all like so our brain is Sorry, full of yeah. neural networks. <laughs> oh, it's so fr- like, it is so annoying to yeah. me that they took that word. It is yeah. it is I remember getting I, my brother is a computer scientist and I remember being like it's not it, it is not a neural network and he's like well that's what it's called. Yeah. And I'm like well you shouldn't it's be allowed to call it learning. that. I like machine learning. <laughs> yeah. that makes it very clear. Get yeah. out of my biology. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean a lot of this reminds me of Carl Friston's work with the free energy principle and the idea that these nets, these networks are trying to minimize their, well, m- yeah, minimize their effort, right? It's it's a lot less uncertainty. Eff- I think he uncertainty, it. yeah, and and the work of uh, Brett Kagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you do you know Brett Kagan? He's done this. Uh, I do kinda, not. He's done some pretty cool stuff. He he has this thing he calls a dish brain, and he's taught these groups of neurons to play the game Pong, the old uh, 80s game. Yeah. And he essentially does exactly what you're saying. He he gives them an unexpected pulse when they miss the ball, and he gives them a repetitive, predictable pulse when they're doing good. And they progressively learn to play better and better Pong. 
What's crazy is that human brains are better. Human brain cells are better at playing pong than mouse brain mm, cells. Mm, 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 mm. And so, th- this is actually a prediction of this multi-stage conception of the mind, multi-stage conception of consciousness. The minds that have the most sophisticated high level, so it, which is us, we're the only ones with language. We would expect to have the most sophisticated elements at all the other stages. So we expect that if only humans have language, we should also have the most sophisticated modules, the most sophisticated individual neurons, uh, networks of neurons, and the most sophisticated molecular machinery inside the neurons. And that's indeed what we find. The most sophisticated neuron in any species is the pyramidal, pyramidal neuron in our frontal cortex and in our frontal cortex is the most sophisticated module, the why module, the emotional module. Why should we do this? Why should we do this action instead of this action? According to our emotions, that is the most sophisticated module on earth. And it contains the most sophisticated neurons with the most sophisticated uh, mechanisms as well. So it isn't, it's not a surprise that human neurons, if they're from the cortex, are going to learn faster than, than the mouse neurons because the human cortex neurons are the smartest on the planet. Well, he didn't test them on smell. And I think that that might be a different result if it was a smell-based game rather than it was an object-throw-object-based yes. game because we are the only ones that throw things, which I think is probably r- somehow relevant and unique to being optimized to play Pong. But I want to know about, what do you mean by most sophisticated neurons? So all of these layers of dynamics are recursive, as I said. So at the bottom is the molecular machinery inside the neuron. So these are the networks of um, receptors on the membrane that react to different chemicals, or maybe um, if they're in a neuron, it's going to react to chemicals. Um, And then you've got the machinery inside the neuron that, say, generates signals or sums up the signals coming to it. In the human pyramidal, I, I can never pronounce that word. I'm terrible at pronouncing everything. But I thought it was the pyramidal. Cortical, yeah. called, <laughs> yeah, the, the cortical neurons, the frontal neuro, the, the neurons in the frontal cortex, they are they have the most uh, dendrites. They have the most dendritic buttons. They have the most sophisticated molecular networks inside them, interacting. Uh, there's a complexity. The complexity, I've seen the complexity inside an individual cortical neuron exceeds the complexity of an entire, you know, jellyfish or uh, entire worm, you know, like the the, the round worm, which has 300 neuron minds, a 300 neuron mind is less intellectually sophisticated, less able to learn than than the the single neuron. The neurons in our frontal cortex are just super, super sophisticated learners. very, very sophisticated. I wonder well, which neurons. The, the, the reason for the reason for this, I, I I know I'm talking so much. I I'm sorry. You're good. Um, You're good. We we call it the metropolis principle. This is a fundamental principle that drives greater intelligence. That's driving the creation of these stages of learning. And it's a pretty simple idea. It's that the more sophisticated the mind grows overall, the more sophisticated the individual elements do. In a feedback loop, you can see this in a city. Cities follow the same path of development, the same dynamics of development as the mind. There's layers built on top of more layers. So the same prediction would be in the biggest, most prosperous cities, we should expect to find the best shoe shiners and the best falafel 
uh, on the corner and, and, and the best, uh, the best brooms that are getting cleaned on the streets. And that is what we find, you know, in New York, in Bombay, in, in Los Angeles, in the big cities, we find the greatest diversity of food. And if you look at the little things, they're done the best in these cities because they have the most money and they have the most, the best feedback cycles. It's the same thing in our brains. So our brains are super sophisticated on every level. It's not just that we have consciousness and that like maybe our visual recognitions are better all the way down to the molecular machinery in our neurons is more sophisticated and getting better all the time. As our brain keeps getting smarter and better, we just, all the layers below it keep getting better, just like a city. As a city becomes more prosperous, more populous, more powerful, all the individual levels uh, start to prosper as well. That's that's so interesting because we've really been riding the crest of that urban-rural divide a little bit because we lived in New York, in Portland, San Francisco. I was in San Diego. Shiloh was in Mexico City. So we've lived in all of these massive urban centers. And after grad school, we decided that it was just too much. I had always had this back-to-the-land fantasy. And I was like, we're going to move somewhere rural. And Shiloh gradually, begrudgingly <laughs> I'm accepted. into it. I'm into it. <laughs> um, Working on my so- garden. That's right. Yeah, you've you've really matured into your your gardening phase. Where, where are you guys now? Where? We're in this really pretty rural area at the California Oregon border. So we're near a town of forty thousand, but we're on the far outskirts. And so we're Oregon has this really interesting thing where they have what's called urban growth boundaries. And so all of the cities have a centrally planned line beyond which you can only have rural properties. And rural properties are defined by having either their one acre of land or five acres of land. So you basically cross a street and then on the other side of the street, you hit full acre requirements. And so we're outside the urban growth boundary, but it's uh, pretty boring. Well, it's, we're running up against this. We spend a lot of time in, in the Bay Area, too, and we are always really excited to go down there, but we also don't want to live there at the same time, which is such a funny paradigm to be experiencing in real time because we're so excited to come back to the country and we're, ah, oh, we can work nice and our heads are clear, but then we just start to feel like, oh, we need to talk, we need to hang out with some people, we need to be having that, day, just going down to the bodega or, or whatever, and, and it's it's a very, very painful division, actually. And I think that inside of a biological system, the same is kind of true where if you're inside of a brain, you are subsumed by the functionality of the brain. You are, you are a cog in a wheel. You are, a, you are a, a transistor in a circuit. You are forced by the circumstances to behave a certain way. We always think about this where... One of the things that living out here gives us is the fact that we can focus on this project and squeak by on very little money. Like, it's a rural area. People, I think that it's one of the poorest counties in the state. And so it's cheap to live. We, we, I, like, I got an oil change the other day for $40. The same oil change in the Bay Area was 100 Yeah, yeah. Right, and you so you should have seen what they wanted for our engine light. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, they they we had an engine light. They came on on our car when we were down there, and I called around to a couple places, and they were charging two hundred dollars to diagnose it. And then the guy that I talked to at length about it was like, "Well, it's going to be a couple thousand probably." And we kind of sat on it. We got up here, and our guy fixed it for two fifty. 
<laughs> and so, right, so there's this massive benefit to living out here. But inside of the city, it's you, you exchange your ability to work for yourself for the ability to get access to the restaurants and the cafes and yeah. the movie theaters and the, the events. And so there is... Right, because that's the crux is most of the people we know in the city are trading the freedom to do what they really want to be doing some portion of their week to be working for somebody else. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And to be selling their time off so they can afford all of the luxuries that the city offers. And so I feel like inside of a biological... To bring it back to the biological context... I feel like there's a certain tragedy in the hypermind because the hypermind is the subservience. The neuron that is at, still at the level of maybe module has the ability to influence the module because it is within a small enough context that it has agency. But the minute that you put it into a larger context, the individual neuron, when it misbehaves inside the body, is pruned and removed. And so there's a certain tyranny there's a certain tyranny of the body that is required to make it function and that's kind of what i'm worried about when i think about the hypermind and the ideological shift that's coming so it the way it should work the way it's historically worked as in the past billion years <laughs> is that to achieve new stages of thinking to achieve a higher state of intelligence and effectiveness and adaptivity uh, adaptiveness and versatility um, always requires that the individual thinking elements be given individuality and freedom. That is, the neurons in our brain are incredibly diverse and have a lot of individuality. I was just talking about the cortical neurons here. They are super sophisticated. They are each like their own country. Each one is radically different. Each has its own beliefs its own behaviors, its own personality. I, these are all legitimate things to describe the super sophisticated dynamics. The point being, to if we want to achieve the higher intelligence, we better have a society where each of us feels like we're the individual we want to be, that we're doing the things that make us happy, that we want to do, that we feel we have the freedom to make up our own mind and take our own actions. If we don't have that, if we are in a place we don't feel that, then we're not, that new stage of thinking is not going to come about. That's not the right dynamics. You need dynamics of individual freedom and individual diversity to achieve a higher intelligence. So, so we, in principle, we shouldn't be able to get to a hypermind unless we've come up with a society, a form of social dynamics that acknowledges our individuality. Uh, that's, it's true to some degree, but there's also a pruning, right? Because if you have neurons that really like to fire all the time, you end up with epilepsy and yeah. you can't have that. And so the individuality of the neuron who's like, I want to be on all the time and I want to make everybody else on all the time. It gets pruned and it gets pruned for good reasons. And we make those trade-offs, right? In our civilization, right? We agree to this absolutely tyrannical state because let's face it, all states are pretty tyrannical. Like I can't do what I want necessarily. But the good news is what things, that what really things. mean guy down the block can't do what he wants either, right? right? And so he can't just come and take my stuff out of my studio right now. And so that's really nice. And so I agree okay i'm not gonna you know do what i want all the time even if i want to take that guy's cows or whatever i'm not gonna do it because <laughs> <laughs> i'd like to have some cows to mow my lawns on saying you know but i'm not gonna take his cows because i agree it's to be part of this superstructure that's gonna you know keep the force down 
essentially. Or keep put the force upon us. It requires, and they seem like these are opposed, but they're not. It requires like complete equality, like complete democracy. Everybody's voice is equal in some fundamental sense. Every neuron in our brain is equal in an adult brain after all the pruning and everything's gone through. So in an adult brain, every neuron is the same, has some have greater influence. Like this neuron might cause greater things down the road. But in terms of the blood that they get, the energy that they get, their, their role, like there's not a neuron that's in command of a hundred other neurons. It doesn't work like that. And, and as you go down the levels, it's the same way. So in principle, what we would need as a human society is some kind of democracy that respects equality, but that where we can each be an individual. You gave an example of a neuron that does its own thing so much, but you try to set things up like it, you try to set things up so that neurons naturally become their own person without harming everything else. And our brain does a pretty good job of that overall. As a society, we still have a long way to go. I mean, this in the United States, you know, we have this hyperpartisanship. It's really a sort of working out, you know, half the country doesn't want the other half to be in control <laughs> and have power and, and how are we going to live this? And, you know, there's some sense of inequality, maybe in income inequality. I think there's other senses of inequality that are driving it. As long as people feel that way, that some people are getting a better better deal than others, then, then we haven't arrived at that at that final spot. But I, I do think that spot would be some ver version of democracy, some kind of equality like we see at the neuron level, but with, you know, complete tolerance of individuality and, you know, even quirkiness, you know, that every person could be their own person. That's fine. And we didn't encourage that. Well, what's really interesting with the bipartisan nature is that I, I think that, I don't quote me on this, but some very, not not a majority, but some large minority of the population doesn't identify with either one of those. And it's an increasingly... It was like 42%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's huge, right? Uh, so I wonder if that is the source from which a new way of looking at it emerges. Because let's be honest, I can't possibly identify with either one of these political parties and neither can anybody that I know. And that's new, actually. That's new in my lifetime. I'm, I'm with you on that. So I, I'm, I'm of the same mind personally as you are. Though sadly, I do think that we're stuck riding those two parties and that the, the, the solution will be driven by the dynamics of those two parties. Sadly, I, I just think it's physically, it's not going to be the case that the nonpartisans, it sounds like, like you, like me, are going to form our own dynamic that's going to suddenly surge up. Those, the people in those parties are driving things. They're the ones heading for a goal. and They each have an outcome they're trying to go for. And the rest of us just aren't along with those purposes, but we can't it's going to be very hard for the rest of us to have a counter, a shared counter purpose. We probably all have different, our own notions of, of counter purposes or how things should be. But as long as the Democrats and Republicans are there in control of the government, you know, with all the money aiming for their objectives, you know, really the re all the rest of us can do is slow down one side or the other or facilitate one side or the other or try to introduce other ideas into the, the dialogue. But it's going to be very hard to redirect things from those two parties. That's just dynamics. I mean, I wish it was otherwise, but I, I personally am a little pessimistic. I, I would agree in the past, but I just feel like when that population becomes a majority, then it's a different game all of a sudden. When every, Except when probably if we had shared beliefs, if we all had this the same shared belief, mm. I think that would be the tough part. Is I think probably 
a lot of these undecided are these these nonpartisans, you know, they're reacting against. I mean, I, I know I am. I don't like where the Republicans are going, and, and I'm a little more. I'm a little more comfortable with the Democrats in general, but not enough to want to get behind them or view myself as a, a Democrat either. And they have plenty of dangerous stuff too, is how I feel. But I just think as much as I'd like otherwise to counter them, you need a different purpose. We would need all mm -hmm. of us to mm -hmm. drive the country towards this other state. And I think the moment we tried to do that, we just would be a party like the other two. I, I, mm -hmm. I think it's the dynamics of purpose is a big part of it. It's just, it's, it's hard to get a lot of people to all do the same thing. Mm. That's just, that's when you do that, you've got, you've got a mind, you know, you've got a new module, you've got, you've got to do something. When you have mass collective purpose heading towards something, that's a very powerful state of things. So the only way to counter that is with, you know, well, when you count Democrats with Republicans and they're feeding off each other. If we had, if a third purpose came, it would inevitably intersect with those two. And then the whole situation would change. Then you'd have a three dynamic situation. Who knows how that would unfold? Highly unpredictable. I like that. So I, I like that. Yeah. I think we could unify ourselves under a purpose, actually. Shiloh's more optimistic about this. Uh, <laughs> okay, so I want to... I'm not saying it's impossible. I just... I'm, 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 it, it, it requires a lot of effort. <laughs> well, it requires an ideology. You said this at, at yeah, some yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. But the, yeah, yeah. the, the next level yeah. is the hyperminds that communicate through ideologies. And I think that That's the people right. that are against the two-party system are fundamentally opposed to ideological perspectives. And so if you are fundamentally opposed to ideological perspectives, how do you bind people together under an ideology which is necessary for action? Like we had this weird thing happen where during the pandemic we had somebody on who was uh she was a doctor who had prescribed ivermectin. She had lost her medical license for it. And that episode got banned from YouTube. We got a community strike. She didn't say anything like radical. We literally just talked about her experience because we were curious about the way that it was playing out where it seemed it seemed unreasonable that she would get her medical license taken away for this. So we got that episode banned on YouTube and it was our best fundraising month that we had ever had because all of the sudden it was a clear event that people could get behind that was ideological in nature. And the minute that I saw that, I my nature is to pull away from that because I, I don't want to be binned with that ideology. I don't like that ideology. I'm not interested in orienting myself as, you know, the, I don't even know what you would call it, but just the, the cantankerous anti-ideology. And, but it was so clear at how strong that was. And so I, I think I kind of agree with you that the center doesn't have that strong of an ideology because it's filled with people who are kind of allergic to the s sublimation of their own values to something that is larger. Yeah, I, I think there's enough people like that that it would make it hard to be like herding cats, you know? Yeah, kind of <laughs> absolutely. I suspect that I... It's an empirical question. Yeah. So Shiloh, maybe you should lead the way. <laughs> oh man. I mean, I have ideas. I, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply committed to finding a solution, an ideological solution. This sounds horrible. Like I, I feel like a freaking like future dictator all of a sudden. I have no interest in being the leader of any such thing, but I do think that there are certain ideologies that concern treating non-human entities as human entities, which could form the basis of such a reactionary party. I'm fine with it being a party in the discussion. 
But anyways, I don't want to get into like a ridiculous political philosophy rant right now. I want to talk about this Y module. I love that name. I was like, that'd be a good name for a band. But the Y module (laughs) is the highest level of complexity, right? It's the, the most sophisticated. The most sophisticated. Model. Can you imagine? Creature on Earth. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I like that. Can you imagine the evolution of an additional level of complexity that goes beyond the why? Well, that's what we have. That's what science and philosophy and, and literature are. You know that it, they are dynamics that we put on top of the why. That now are when we're making a decision. You know, should I? stick with my job or, you know, quit and look for a new job, you know, uh, we're making these big decisions. We can now, we can read a book on philosophy. We can read, you know, a self help book. We can talk to our friends. Hey, what do you think I should do in this situation? We can look at, uh, science, how many people who quit their job, you know, go on to quickly find another job. Like, all of this, you know, is, is an adjunct to the Y module. It's a Y module. The supermind is creating its own, Y module and that supermind Y module is science and, and art. Mm. <laughs> it's almost the it, it's almost the how module, no? No, the how is like below. It's accomplishing the why. I think in his model, yeah. In our model, we, I mean, this the, the word we chose to use. How is is how do you mm-hmm. do something? How do you grab it? How do you mm-hmm. reach for it? How do you move? How do you move it? I guess, I guess I'm just trying to imagine is is it might we have to break through that evolutionary leap to the next module before we can even understand what the next level of complexity would look like? Or can we imagine a question bigger than why? I think it's just the why question keeps getting expanded mm. into a new scope of chaos. Even an insect has a network that we can consider a why module. It has an emotional module mm. that's it this is aversive or this is you know attractive you know this is appealing or attractive. it's pretty simple it's pretty binary but it does have circuits that do that it just doesn't have it certainly is not a conscious feeling and its feeling is not as sophisticated what makes our feeling module our why module so much more sophisticated than a fruit flies why network is because we can hold two options simultaneously, each with an emotional thing. So we can decide keeping my job has this emotion. Uh, you know, I like the money. I don't like my boss. Leaving my job has these emotions. You know, I, I, I'll have freedom. I can go be a painter the way I always wanted, but the money is going to be less. I'm not going to be happy about that. We can hold those representations simultaneously as two different options with two different sets of feelings. And the fly mind, it has one option in the feeling associated with that and it, act, and it reacts. So with us, we take a moment, we compare, and then we react. The next mind, the supermind, the supermind has developed its own Y module. That's that's science and that's government, you know, and that does have more deliberation. Should we build a new subway? Should we extend the subway line? There's public meetings, there's public discussions. Uh, you know, People vote on it. There might be a, a, a referendum. The, there might be an election in the legislature that the governor might veto it. All of this is the supermind level of, of why. So it just, and then the hypermind why might be, you know, at some point we get to a why where it's, uh, should we start a new Big Bang? <laughs> or should we just keep riding the Big Bang that, that we're part of? You know, that, that'll be the ultramind's uh, state of why. It'll be something like that. That's really interesting. I mean, I I agree that this is the best explanation for consciousness that we've come across. And 
it leaves open for me the question of death and immortality. Because you said something where if we wanted to achieve immortality, we're going to have to do it in a way that allows us to encode whatever state of usness we have into far more complex computers that we have right now. Because right now, death feels like the cessation of the resonance. I've been trying to think about this recently of why does a creature die? You get old, people die of old age, right? It's not trauma, it's not anything that is acute. It's just one day the body stops. Just widespread dysfunction. Yeah, and so it seems like what it is is the resonance gradually slowing and decaying until finally it's so disordered that it just can't keep going. The dynamics stop. You can think of it, it's like our mind is in consciousness is like a tornado and it just unwinds, rolls around for the final time. The stuff in a corpse is exactly the same as the stuff in a living conscious person from an hour before. It's just the dynamics are different. The way the stuff is interacting, that's the best way to think you know, about the mind. It's all the stuff's the same. Every molecule in your dead body is the same as the molecules that were there in the live body. It's the dynamics that have changed. It's like an actual hurricane. So imagine a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. Can you pick up that hurricane and put it on Lake Superior? Like, you know, if, if you're a, if you were a giant creature with a gigantic spoon, could you just spoon out the hurricane and put it on Lake Superior? No, because the moment you disconnected that hurricane from the from the environment, the weather, the atmosphere directly around it, it loses its dynamics. The dynamics are not a thing that's just hanging there in space. It's activity of all of that stuff interacting. So once our, once our brain cells, once our neurons stop interacting, the dynamics stop and then our mind stops. So the, the challenge of immortality, the challenge of getting our mind out of our head, it's really like reproducing a hurricane, the exact same hurricane. So, you know, Hurricane Andrew, if we want to make exactly Hurricane Andrew again, then we'll have the same mind, the same person. So it's a very daunting challenge, but physically, there's not some physical piece of that that's that's impossible. It's just very, 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 very hard. But it is akin to recreating like the exact same tornado, you know, the same speed, the same, you know, almost the same number of molecules, you know, the, the same temperature, like all of that, uh, getting the same dynamics that has to whirl in exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. So very. It's, it's interesting that, that that's essentially what they're running up against when it comes to space travel, right? It's, well, we should bring the earth, we need to bring our environment with us. And, you know, the go-to things we need to bring, oh, we need air. Great, we got air. Oh, but people are still getting sick. They need gravity. Oh, no, okay, we can maybe fix that with some sort of inertial rotating device. Okay, but people need each other. They need interactions. They need all of these things, right, that... It, it's almost like you have to recreate the world in order to go anywhere because you are the world, right? I can't live without the trees outside. It just yeah. wouldn't work out. And so I, I don't think it's going to be personally, I don't think it's going to be humans exploring space. I think it's going to be our creations and we're going to stick here. You know, maybe we'll get to the moon. The moon seems very plausible. Uh, even Mars seems like a fantasy to me. Just, we need so much goddamn stuff for our biology. I, right? I mean, you're just scratching the surface with all that. I mean, you can get by for a month or something, but if we're talking about living there, the amount of stuff that we need, it, it, it's it's enormous. And we're not even thinking of it all. I mean, we won't know it until we're there. And 
Oh shoot, we forgot hand lotion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seems like a noble quest, if only as a backup hard drive for this place, because it seems like a pretty unstable situation being a rock in the middle of all these other flying rocks. And, you know, it could just get There's... whacked one day and that would be really bad if we didn't have... You know, with my Terraform Venus, that, that seems eminently doable. Uh, of all the, Venus seems more doable than, than Mars. But even Mars, Mars seems doable that maybe we'll terraform the close, pla- the close terrestrial planets. But I, I think if you really look at it honestly, I think our future, our distant future is us making AIs, making robots, analog robots that go out and can share their qualia with us, that we can experience firsthand what those robots are experiencing when they're walking on Pluto or flying, th- flying through there. I mean, that's, we're almost at that. Techno- that technology is conceivable right now. Like if somebody said in 10 years, I'm going to make a robot that, that can start doing this, that would be within the realm of possibility. And then those robots build more robots and it's the robots that are doing the colonizing. And we're just back here getting to experience it all. They just share their experiences with us. You know, it'll be like, like virtual reality that we, can totally inhabit it. You know, it won't, it won't just be like looking at pictures. It'll be a total, uh, you know, inhabiting these realities that our devices are out in the universe uh, sharing with us, you know, and, you know, probably one day we'll be able to figure out how to do travel near light speed or even teleportation sorts of things, but it's not going to be humans doing it. It's going to be devices that then transmit stuff back to us. So probably the future, if we reach, you know, these, these higher stages, hypermind, ultramind things, higher stages humans our physical bodies are probably still going to be here on earth maybe venus maybe the moon but our stuff is going to be all over and we're going to be experiencing it we're going to be feeling that we don't need to we won't need to leave we don't need to walk on pluto because we'll be able to experience walking on pluto from you know our own house it's probably mm. how to play out but who but who knows who knows i mean i i totally agree which is why i'm always perplexed when the uap ufo community is talking about alien beings walking around i'm like why in the world would they send a fleshy being across the galaxy when they could just send a drone it'll probably be nanoscopic probes um <laughs> that they can shoot near the speed of light but if you take the mind stuff so here's the thing I got a lot to say about extraterrestrials. I will. Yeah. Excellent. No, 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 let, no, let us know. Give us your thoughts. Carl Sagan took the world and science in the wrong direction. So Carl Sagan had physics fantasies of aliens. All of his fantasies are coming out of physics. And, and personally, I think all of his ideas about aliens are really silly, but the world lapped it up. So the world's notion of, of aliens is like the movie Contact or the movie Arrival big spaceships flying through vast distances, uh, bringing creatures that are going to talk some other <laughs> language to us. So, so I, I deeply enjoyed Arrival and Contact, my kinds of movies, but I thought they were ridiculous. I thought they were silly. I thought they're nothing like what extraterrestrials are going to be. Communication is about minds. You don't need all this physical stuff. You don't need these big giant spaceships to have mind-to-mind communication. We have it already, language, and this is super simple. What we need to have is exchanging qualia, which language is what does that. You know, movies do this, art does this. We have lots of ways, and there's going to be more sophisticated ways as we get better with technology. So, yeah, I think uh, if we're going to look for aliens, 
there might be some other aliens in our galaxy developing like we are, and maybe one day we'll see them with a telescope. That could happen. It's not like that's impossible, but it's way more likely that we're going to encounter these aliens mentally, that they're going to be able to influence our minds from a distance because they're going to influence dynamics. The thing that I always think about, one of the most important dynamics in our human brain, uh, other mammals have this, birds have this, just mammals and birds. Um, I think the, le the lesser vertebrates have uh, poorer versions of this, but we have a very sophisticated, we call it uh, a when module. So uh, the when module synthesizes sequences. So the when module is necessary, for example, for language. So we hear a sentence, here is a sentence, and we put all the words together and we extract meaning. For the when module to operate, so in order to understand language, in order to remember a grocery list, in order to be able to use a tool, you know, to hammer a nail, first pick up the hammer, then hit it, then hit it again, any kind of sequence of action, sequence of things, it all comes down to the when module. The when module thinks forward and backwards in time. The, the when module actually has dynamics that move forward in time, but it also has dynamics that move backwards in time. That's how you understand a sentence. You can't understand the meaning of the early words in the sentence till you know the context of the later words. So there's all kinds of illusions that come out of this. For example, um, a famous illusion is uh, if I say the word delivery, but instead of the V sound, I play white noise instead of the V sound, what you'll hear, what you'll subjectively hear is the word delivery. You'll hear the word, the, the phoneme V with white noise behind it, even though in reality, all you heard was white noise. There was no V. Your mind fills in that V because of the backward dynamic. Now, what's so interesting about this backwards in time dynamic, what's so interesting about this backwards in dynamic, dynamic this physical dynamic could operate at other levels. So if you had a hypermind, it could have this dynamic too. Why does this matter? If we are encompassed within a, a larger mind right now, even without our knowledge, that mind can be having backwards in time dynamics. It's not violating the laws of physics any more than our brain is. It's just a kind of dynamic that the way, to, the way it seems to operate is backwards in time. If you break it down, you can see everything is moving forward in time. But the way it subjectively is experienced is as backwards in time. But if we're inside a gigantic mind, that mind can have a backwards in time dynamic too, which means that like our sense of time could be within a larger sense of time for a larger mind, which could then mean it can influence our perceptions. It can control the dynamics that are presented to us because it's operating over a large range of time. The upshot of all this is just to say that, yeah, maybe like Carl Sagan said, aim your telescope into outer space and you'll see an alien out there. But according to what we're now understanding about neurodynamics, the way of mind, the dynamics of thought, it's easy to see how we could be ensconced within other minds right now, be around other minds that could communicate us, be communicating us with us right now in ways that we're just not yet ready to pick up or not yet sensitive to. Well, have you looked into this research about uh, the effect of magnetic fields on brain states? I know a little about that. I know, like, I know there's a, 
oh, I forgot the name. There's, there's a machine that can turn off parts of the brain by imposing a magnetic field on them. Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah. So those exist. Yeah. Transcranial magnetic simulation That's it, is, yes, right. yep, I can never remember is like the most basic <laughs> the version of it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. It's, it's crazy that you can take the internal state of the brain by applying an external electromagnetic field, you can change what the brain is perceiving inside of it. And so that seems like yes. a relatively straightforward way yes. of... You're influencing the dynamics as simple as that, yes. Somebody actually sent me this crazy patent. I don't remember who had it. I think it was Sony or something. And it was a pat specifically for this, for being able to influence the emotional condition of the people who are watching a show by flashing specific patterns of electromagnetic radiation on the screen as a method of evoking specific emotional states. Yes. Very possible. All you need to do is alternate is to alter the dynamics in the brain and magnetic can do it. There's a, there's a, there's many ways that it's possible. And we're just at the beginning of figuring those out, but you know, imagine in 50 years, the level of control and precision that might be, possible then imagine a million years what that level of control might be but it wouldn't be us anymore right and that's that's always something that i'm thinking of where you know if you go back a million years in time from today to a million years ago it's not us no and it won't 10, be us years it's not us right and so there's this there's this deconstructive thing that's happening to humans as we make ourselves, that we're making ourselves yes. into something else already. And there's a tendency to want to hold on to the thing that we have. I think that this is what conservatism is in general, yes. which is that yes. we have we have evolved and it was right and it was good and we should return to that and then things will be okay. But the reality yeah. is, is that we're part we're dynamic systems that are part of other dynamic systems and what we're doing as we're making ourselves is inevitably making ourselves into something different and that can yes. be very frightening because yes. we like who we are and we like being where we are well there's a lot of evolutionary dead ends too there are a lot of evolutionary dead ends and so if you go down that road there's no guarantee that you're actually going to make it out the other side in any recognizable way but i think that it's also comforting because we spend a lot of time really worried and concerned about the way that reality is unfolding in front of us right now. You know, the, the politics and the hunger and the inequality and the violence and the, the rage and the poverty. But at the end of the day, it's this transient state that yeah. won't hold. And I think that I find both great tragedy in that and great comfort. And great promise. Cause what's happening, the unfolding we're seeing is giving everybody their own voice. We're in a world where everybody wants to have a voice. And why shouldn't they? You know, like people that were previously minority, you know, black people want a voice. Latino want a voice. Women want a voice. Uh, China wants a voice. Russia wants a voice. Everybody wants a voice. And the internet is giving everybody a voice. And this is a good thing. I mean, what we're seeing is what happens when everybody has a microphone. You know, suddenly everybody wants to be paid attention to. Nobody wants to pay attention to everybody else. We've got to go through this. Like it is a mess right now. It's chaotic. There's anger. There's hate. You know, everybody's nervous. There's war. Maybe the world get bigger. There's all kinds of scary things all around us. But this is what it looks like when we're in transition. This is what, if you want to give voiceless people a voice, it's going to change things. And that's what we're seeing. You know, like the all kinds of people. You know, this is what's driving the politics in America, too. There's all these people on the left that are suddenly have voices that didn't have voices. And the people on the right were used to having the dominant voice. And suddenly they got to 
share the voice and they, they're worried their voices are getting lost and they want their voices back. So everybody wants to participate in this grand dance. Everybody wants to you know sing along, add some verses. And we're all trying to figure out how to manage this. You know, before it was a minority of people that ran things, a minority of people that got that had their voice. And creating new dynamics to encompass, you know, encompass this dramatic change. It's hard, it's not easy. That's what we're we're experiencing, but we got to go through it. We can't get to a better world without going through this craziness we're going through right now. That's about that. if we want if we if we want it to be stay the way it was, we'll, we'll never get to new levels of intelligence and compassion and never see what's out there in the universe. I love that. What is it? The darkest stars right before the dawn, which isn't actually true, but it, it's an. Well, it has to be at long enough. It's scales. the darkest is in the middle of the night. Come well, on. well, dawn begins okay. after the darkest hour. Okay, okay. Right, like it's the the pendulum swing. One thing we're you mentioned: constructive chaos. That's what we're in right now. It's it's chaos, but it's constructive. It's aim, it's aiming towards something, even if it's hard to see right now. <laughs> mm. One thing you mentioned that I think is really, really important and a brilliant insight is that time necessitates memory. And I think it was a terrible disservice when the physicists used that variable T in their equations instead of some variable to say, this is what our clock read, right? This is a measurement of whatever, which would alleviate no end of irrationalities that have consumed popular physics in the past century. You need a mind for time. It is literally the interaction of the dynamics of mind and dynamics of matter. Like, for there to be two sets of dynamics, for there to have be the word dynamic, you need time. But the time only emerges from that interaction. Without a mind, time is, is meaningless. I mean, what would it be, you know, without a mind to think about it? It's, it's just... Right, right. But that's the, the terrible thing is that what physical equations refer to with the lowercase t is what they're clock is doing right and a clock is just a device that they've conceived of to yeah. mark a repetitive motion and they compare some other motion against their hopefully consistent repetitive motion and they use the word time for that but it's not a pro it's not actually time it's just yeah. a, a measurement tool and so they've extrapolated the entire concept of time to what their machines would do in different cases and it's made a real mess out of the fundamental physics landscape in my own Shiloh, I, I, I don't know the fundamental physics landscape, but I agree with you about what physicists, how they went wrong with time. I mean, so here's my view of science. Let me give you my quick five-minute view of, of the history of science. So science used to be originally mind science and physics, the science of purpose and the science of purposelessness used to be united. So whether it was natural philosophers, Isaac Newton, you know, John Locke, uh, Francis Bacon, 17th century. They those guys all studied matter and mind. You know, Newton studied light and vision and perception as well as gravity, and, and all the early guys did. But then there was the great science schism, hmm. two pathways. Physicists emerged and said, We are going to study anything that can be studied using logic, reductionism, and high constraints. We are going to take the path of constraints. There was another path the path of low constraints <laughs> and the people that took that, that path were the mind scientists. So the ones that decided to study mind, they had to study something very, very different than those that studied physics. The problem was those people that went off to study physics told themselves there is no purpose in the universe. The universe is aimless. The universe does not have minds. 
that will be the foundation for our studies. Now, having that assumption gets you a hell of a lot. Physics has done a lot more than the mind because they made that decision early on to say, let's pretend there's no purpose. Let's see how far we can get. Now, if you take out purpose, time is a problem. Time <laughs> starts to cause all kinds of things because time is tied to purpose. So if you get rid of purpose, well, you're left over with part of purpose that's kind of snuck in there and then you mm. keep pretending. And then you're like, well, what is time? How does time work? I don't know. It's a baffling. It's a quantum foam. Uh, what, what is this? This how, how could it be? Maybe it's it's like the North Pole. It just it was, that's Hawking's idea. It just ends. It. No, it, it's part of purpose. And it, you, who cares about the only person that cares about time is a person, is a mind. Mm -hmm. So you, you get you only get it that way. So these divided. So physicists basically were playing chess. Just this step leads to this step. We're going to use symmetry. We're going to use logic. We're going to use reason. We're going to use math. That's great. It got a lot done. Yeah, it's it great for building stuff, right? It's great for technology. Great for That's why people stuff. worship it, right? That's why people will put physicists at the for top of that. Low-level stuff. Let's be clear. I, I, I agree. Stuff like circuits. Yeah, you can build an stuff. iPhone, but you don't know what to do with it, right? You don't know you how to keep your right. you don't know how to keep yourself from letting it destroy your life either. At the same time, you can build spaceships and rockets, but you can't really set. You don't really have a voice at the table. Like, is this? what we want to be doing is this why are we doing this exactly. why are exactly. why should we and so physicists were playing chess and mind scientists were playing grand theft auto but <laughs> you can do anything is it right is it wrong should we do this should we do this should we go shoot this guy should we bring flowers over you know hey, what what does it even mean to win in grand theft auto it, it's open-ended there's morality there's, there's purpose it's a very different game than than chess you know chess it's black and white. You move, then I move. His limited moves, and we all know what the outcome is. It's going to be a unified theory that combines relativity and quantum physics. We all know what we're aiming for. We all know the players. We all know the rules. It's very simple. That's physics. The great schism, half of human scientists went off in that way, and that's how they play. The other half, we're playing Grand Theft Auto. What is right? What is wrong? There, there's no questions about right and wrong in physics. <laughs> and even, it just even posing that question is like, what are you? What are you doing bringing that shit in here? We don't have to care. This is a, more, a moral question, but you can't talk about mind. You can't talk about purpose, about this goal or that goal without having a valuation of the goal. Is that goal worth pursuing? It's different math. It's different dynamics. It's and, and isn't it interesting way. that the that the biologists have gotten eaten by the physicists because they could have gotten eaten by the mind people or the minds the mind school of I don't want to say mind school of thought, but they could have gone down that road too, but when you start pushing on a biological theory, they're eventually going to point to a physicist. They're going to be like, "Go ask that guy about this yes. aspect, right?" And that gets uh, that puts us in a strange place where our our biological technology, our medicine, is very physical, right? Yes, and that is not working out in many cases of course it's great for putting a like a broken leg back together and all of these things but when you're talking about healing a being it yes. you run into a, a non-physical dimension which has been sort of neglected by the supremacy of physics it, it's not a it's not a meaningless mistake that this schism happened and that one has come to dominate it's yes to be so, very, so i was about to yeah what i wanted to say was the schism has been terrible for humanity in a lot of ways, let me share what I think is the greatest tragedy in science, which relates to this. So, in my opinion, the greatest 
science, living scientist is Steven Grossberg. He is a mathematical neuroscientist at Boston University. I did, I did study under him. I studied under him because I thought he was going to explain consciousness, and he did explain consciousness. But let me tell you why this is a tragedy, and it relates to the Great Schism, and it relates to what you just said about the tragedy here, because it is a tragedy. So Isaac Newton started modern science, started modern physics, because he threw out all presumptions. There was plenty of presumptions, Christian presumptions about how the world universe worked. He threw them all out. He said, let's start from first principles. I'm not going to have any assumptions about how the heck matter works, how the heck matter moves around, how gravity works. Start with first principles entirely. And piece by piece, I'll mathematize this and I'll figure out how it works. And Newton did that. And then everybody else just started imitating him. But the first thing he did is say, I'm throwing out all the principle, all the assumptions and presumptions that are here and just looking at the stuff itself and figuring it out. That's what needed to happen in mind science. Somebody needed to sit, sit down and say, let's start with first, first principles, figure out the math, and just keep extending it the way physics did with Newton. The problem is, because Newton got there first and physics took off so much, and because physics looks so great, everybody in mind science at some point looks over at physics with envy and says, we got to be like those guys. Let's just latch on to that. Let's figure out how to express biology in physical terms. Let's mm. express the mind in physical terms. That's why the idea of a statistical mind, uh, the idea of a digital mind, the mind is a computer. Those things came from outside. These came from physics envy. Like physics is doing great with this math. Physics is doing great with like using logic and reductionism. Let's apply this to the mind. So this is deeply embedded in institutions, in universities, in journals, in academia. If you're a young person coming into mind science, coming into psychology, coming into neuroscience, you're not going to be ex exposed to the idea. Get ready for the mathematics of the mind, which is going to be different than anything else you've seen before. It's going to be a new math, a new way of thinking. They're going to learn the same statistics you learn in physics classes. They're going to learn like algorithms and digital theory and number theory that you would learn from that. And they'll even learn some physics as well. They're going to learn all the stuff that you learn in the physical sciences. And the suggestion is you can figure out the mind from this path, which you can't, what you need is a different math. Steven Grossberg, at the age of 17, was a freshman at Dartmouth College, and he was given a challenge in his freshman Psychology 101 class. The challenge is, how do people remember lists of items, like a grocery list? And specifically, how come when we remember grocery lists, we can remember the early items in the list, the first items, and we can remember the last items in the list, but we have trouble remembering what's in the middle. No theory of mind in the 50s could explain this at all. Freudianism had no idea. Behaviorism, no idea. Cognitive science, no idea. This, this challenge uh, entranced teenage Steve Grossberg, and he sat down and did what Isaac Newton did. He said, I'm throwing out all assumptions. I'm going to mathematize this from first principles. He, on his own, figured out the dynamics of the Y module at the age of 17. He figured out forward in time and backward in time processing. He figured out short-term dynamics and long-term dynamics and how they interacted. He figured out uh, something called the complementary thinking principle by which two complementary dynamics bind together. He figured out, just like Newton did, the basic math of thought. 
And he spent the next 65 years building on that math, just like physics did with Isaac Newton. So today, Stephen Grossberg has mathematics for almost every part of the mind. He has mathematics for visual recognition, mathematics for audio recognition, for vision, for audio, for planning, for targeting, for all kinds of memory, for the experience, for language, uh, for, for tool making. He's got math to all these things that he has built slowly and steadily, just like physics did for 65 years by starting, throwing out assumptions and starting with this idea, the math has to be the right math for the mind, not math borrowed from studying stars and planets. The brain is not stars and planets. The brain is its own thing. It needs its own math. He figured all that math out. Here's the tragedy. Because of this schism, and because physics got this early start, it has dominated thinking. And we've all come to think of physics as the right kind of science, as the right way to think about science, as logic and reduction and the kind of math that like, the statistical kinds of math that we usually find in, in physics, that that is science. And mind science needs to move into that. No, no, no. Mind science is its own thing. So Steve figured it out. He just published a book called Conscious Mind, Resonant Brain that explains math for the entire brain. It's like the theory of relativity and quantum mechanics all rolled into a single book and nobody's heard of it. Nobody can understand this stuff. It's really complicated. It's really sophisticated because it's new. It's not like anything else. And nobody wants to spend the time learning it. If you go get your PhD and you've never been exposed to this, why would you want to then go back and learn somebody else's math and follow in the footsteps of somebody else? You're going to keep doing whatever it was you were trained in your graduate school to do, which is wrong. Whatever it is, it's wrong because Steve's got math that unifies the whole goddamn brain. He has math that shows how what's happening inside a neuron, you can relate to that to a conscious experience. How the math at every level of these hierarchies, how they interrelate, how the math, what the math is inside the visual module, what the math is inside the audio module. He's worked it all out. It's wonderful. It's really goddamn hard and it's not like anything else. So here we are. 2023, we're stuck, all these people trying to figure out consciousness, which to me is like, it, it's figured out. We've got relativity. We've got quantum mechanics. We've got the equations. That's where we are. It's like somebody's saying, I just wish I could understand why the earth is attracted to the sun. Well, we've got that. We figured it out. You know, it's not a mystery. I know you're calling it the hard problem. It's not a hard problem. It's only a hard problem if you're committed to the idea that the brain is a computer, the brain is digital or something like that. It's all figured out in great detail, but nobody knows it. Nobody can learn it. And how can you train anybody? I, I Really, you need undergrad. You, you need high school kids to already be aware of it and then start studying it as undergrads. If you teach them anything else, in, in undergrad, by the time they get to grad school, they're going to have all the wrong notions and they're not going to want to go back and learn a whole new mathematical framework. So the state of science, because of this great schism 400 years ago, we're in a place now where consciousness is explained in tremendous detail with tremendous data it's not like a little bit. He didn't just discover like, like it's not just resonance, it's resonance and tons of other mathematical dynamics all worked out over 65 years. It's beautiful. Nobody knows about it. Nobody wants to know. About it. I want to talk to him. Yeah. yeah if you're a working psychologist, if you've maybe published a book on consciousness and didn't touch any of this and suddenly you're told, oh yeah, Steve, he figured it out. The reason you're so mistaken is because uh, confused. He can explain it. Nobody wants to hear that. That it, it, Nobody wants to feel like all the effort they put into understanding 
the mind and consciousness was always, you know, the wrong road. So we're now stuck in this situation. We've got a clear answer to consciousness. You guys have just heard it. There's, there's still things to be filled in, but this is the core of it. And the math is all worked out. This isn't just like some speculation. The Stephen Grossberg identified resonance as a dynamic in 1982. This is not new science. And he had the math for that, that core dynamic worked out by the end of the 80s. So this is not some new recent breakthrough. This is figured out, then built more on it, figured it out, built more on it, figured it out. That's why what I'm saying it's like relativity and quantum mechanics. It is. He's figured this out top to bottom. But you look at podcasts, you look at journal articles, you look at the mainstream media. There's a mystery of consciousness. When will we solve consciousness? It's a hard problem. No, it's solved. It was solved 20 years ago. It was very much solved in 2017 when Steve published all the mathematical details of consciousness. But people don't think of consciousness as a mathematical thing. They think there's going to be some spiritual answer in there somewhere. It's going to be some energy, some alternate field somewhere. This is what people are reduced to. Uh, they don't want to think that, well, we can explain it, but sadly, you need some really sophisticated math to really understand the concepts. But this is the reality that we're, we're inhabiting right now. I think that this is common in physics as well, because you you head down to the very basis of quantum and there's a sense of the inexplicability and the spookiness of it. And there's a lot of constructions that are put up in order to maintain the strangeness and the weirdness that happens down there. But over the course of our project, we've talked to plenty of people, you know, Caltech professors, MIT professors, people that have spent their careers in in physics and and electrical engineering who have a very clear and straightforward understanding of what's actually happening down there that simplifies the spookiness. And there's no real desire to engage with it because exactly what you said, people want magic. And the science that is the most magical, which I think is quantum, and I think it is consciousness. Those are the two places where you can really go hog wild with the magic. Relativity. Too. relativity as well where all the the thought experiments and the wouldn't it be cools and the astral projections and the the, the quantum weirdness people find great comfort in those because you've taken away religion and spirituality from the cultural consciousness and replaced it with reason and logic and so and there's a great comfort in believing that we already understand how things work. Like you move past gravity really quick. Like, oh, we know why the sun sticks, why the earth sticks to the sun. But I would argue that it, it's actually very well schematized. We have very powerful descriptions mathematically of how that happens. But we, we don't really have a why for it yet. There's no material basis for it yet. So there's, there's all this work to be done that gets sort of moved aside because there is this great sense of, oh, well, we understand the how very, very well, and that's good enough. I, and it provides- I can give you the why for quantum physics. I can give you the why. For free will to exist, for purpose to exist, and not lead to gods. You do not want an omnipresent, omnipotent, <laughs> ubiquitous, all-powerful God. When that happens, the universe freezes in place. So you want purpose endlessly competing. You cannot have a mind that knows absolutely everything. There isn't a mind that knows absolutely everything. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking right now. We wouldn't be having independent thought. So in order to preserve 
free will and prevent the formation of a God, you need uncertainty at the bottom level. Minds cannot predict precisely the features at the bottomless level. I call it chaotica, the, the quantum level. Um, you need a chaotica where no mind can know exactly what's happening in order to build up purpose, in order to build up minds, and in order to have free will. So in this cosmic cycle, you got to have a bottom with unpredictable, with predictable unpredictability. It's, you need perfectly predictable unpredictableness. Well, that's what statistics quantum, are for, yeah. yeah that's that, which, is, which is quantum physics. You, right. The equation can give you the exact probability, but it's a probability. You don't know which way it's gonna, the coin is going to fly. That's exactly what you need to have free will. If you don't have that, you can't build free will. You can't build purpose. You, you won't build these stages of thinking. And that's what permits this cosmic cycle. If you have ultra minds, if you have minds that are capable of purposeful control over entire galaxies or, or even bigger, they can start to control enough matter that they can control the physics, control the probability schemes in the, in the, in the, in, at the quantum level. So that by having uncertainty there, if you look at it within a cycle that interacts with purpose, you can see it as a giant cycle that permits us to exist, permits us to have free will, permits unpredictability. It means we ha we do not know what's going to happen in our future. This is a beautiful thing because it means our actions matter, our choices matter. Mm. It, all this enables us to have purposeful lives with meaning where our choices make a difference. They matter. The future is unknown. It's what we make it. We may solve climate change. We may exterminate ourselves. It's beautiful that this is the reality. It's what we make it. We get, a, we get our act together. We save the earth. Oh, we don't, and we die off, and you know, an infinite number of other species out, and an infinite number of other galaxies are going to you know, rise and get their chance. And that's and how we'll we get our... purpose in our individual lives too, right? That's how. That's how I. I can only speak for myself, I guess, but I know other people agree too. When you take on something that seems impossible and then you pull it off, that's the greatest feeling imaginable, yes. essentially, right? Whether yes. that's a marriage or it's a music project or a scientific theory, when you set out to do something that's un that just seems like how in the world would I ever make that work? And then you pull it off. It's, it, it makes everything worthwhile. Absolutely. And it works at the supermind level too. You know, America beat the Nazis in World War II. And my God, do we celebrate that endlessly? And my God, is that part of our identity that we did this thing? And that's a supermind thing. We all feel that pride. I mean, none of the three of us fought in that, in that war, but we're allowed to feel pride that our country, you know, rose up against a great evil and, and defeated it. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. Well, we like to think uh, we would have fought in it, right? We, yeah, we, that's uh, right. Like we would have done that too. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah the reality wow. sometimes proves that's not the case. Yes, man. So, so yeah, I hope that beautiful thing about about this view of the universe, this cosmic cycle, this ladder of purpose, is that it means we are creating the gods of the future, the ultra minds of the future. So down the road, there'll be some purposeful mastery of our solar system, hopefully our galaxy. The actions we take, you and I, the listeners in the show are taking right now are influencing what that God will be, what mm -hmm. that massive mind, all-powerful, very powerful, not all-powerful, very powerful mind will be like. If we are good and compassionate and open, then that's what the God will be. And if we're selfish and combative and, and, and intolerant, then we'll create a God. We'll create superminds. Uh, yeah, I, I really think else. you can change the world just by walking down the street and smiling at everybody. I really think that that makes a better town. And it, it's like, can you imagine if everybody did that? Like, 
it'd be a totally different planet, right? Child, I'm with you. That's beautiful. And beautiful it's sentiment. and you have that power. Everybody has that power, which is when you realize that, it's kind of extraordinary and and really sets you free. Yeah, the worst thing religious did for us is make us think that the control and the being is outside of ourselves instead of in ourselves. Like we are creating that God. That it's not God commanding us. 100%. It's not God out there that we need to aspire to. We're building that God in, in the actions that we're taking today. I mean, that, that we're making that God. I had a lady the other day tell me that it did not matter any of the actions that she took in her life. As long as she believed in God, that was what mattered. And it was really difficult for, I mean, it's hard to argue with somebody who presents their beliefs so clearly, but the idea that your actions don't matter, that your aspiration to godhood and to, to embody the, the ideal form is not what matters, to me seems like the most frustrating and potentially harmful ideology that there possibly can be. Because if the responsibility is always on someone else, someone external, who you are hoping will one day make the world look the way that you want it to look, as opposed to taking it onto yourself, that is the greatest failure of all of our cultural institutions. It is seriously I'm the most depressing side. thing that you can encounter in fundamentalism. And you encounter, I mean, you encounter it all the time. Like, there's this weird thing about morality right now, which is that there isn't an objective good, there isn't an objective thing to aim yourself towards, and, you know, there's there's a multitude of things that can be that can be good, and honestly, really, the division between good and bad isn't clear and everything is gray and I'm like I think that that's that's taken hold of people because aiming for good is hard it's hard it's, it's hard to do the good thing it's hard to be responsible for being good yeah. I, th that's the hard part I think I, I think there's comfort in a God because the responsibility for goodness it's on him not me if if the world's effed up if, if the world's full of evil eh, ain't me don't blame me it's, it's somebody else I, I and I think that's comforting I mean if if you have a ch anybody who has a child, you're responsible for that kid. It's, it's a it's a burden. It's a it's a heavy burden, you know. And a lot of times you want to be free of that burden, but no, you know that kid's outcome, you know, whether it's good or bad, is it's on your shoulders. And, and if you believe in a God, it's sort of easing that burden. So I I understand why people believe in it. They they don't want the responsibility for 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 being good for 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 their choices mattering. You know, we want to believe that God will decide whether climate change is solved or not. You know, and not, but it's on our shoulders and that, that's tough. It's tough. We might fail. You know, we might all die. We might poison the air enough that, that, that we all die. That's real. You know, and, and you gotta, that's hard to live with. That's hard to face. Yeah. I mean, I think that the most important thing that comes out of this is the responsibility for purpose. Yeah. And I really, I appreciate that because it's rare that scientific theories come down to that. There's a, there's a school of thought that's slowly starting to emerge. So I can kind of bin this in the category of, we've talked to Don Hoffman on the show before, who has this conscious agent theory of the universe where conscious agents sum to progressively create larger and larger consciousnesses. We've also talked to Michael Levin a lot, who has a, a purpose-driven model for cellular behavior, and he's doing pretty incredible things in the field of regenerative medicine where he can apply an external electric field and change the way that a body regenerates in terms of permanent structural changes that don't seem to be in the DNA. Like, he, Have you seen his work? No, no, I'm not familiar with what you're describing. Ah, uh, he does crazy stuff. So he can take a planarian flatworm that regenerates when you cut it in half, and normally it'll regenerate 
one head, but then he can cut it in half, he can apply an electric field, and it'll regrow two heads, and then with and but there's no changes to the genetic code. It's literally a field effect that is encoded in the hardware of the creature, and then in perpetuity, when you cut that worm in half, it will always regrow with two heads. Wow, that's fascinating. And it's super fascinating, and it really does speak to the will of cells and the purpose of biology, because that's what his entire theory is based on. And he gets a lot of flack from the scientific community because he goes and he talks to people about the philosophy that underpins his research. And everyone, he says, tells him to stop talking about that. <laughs> because they're like, I, I don't want to know any, like, this is weird. Your technology is cool, but please, like, leave the philosophy behind. But <laughs> his, his mentality is that, hey, if you don't know why you're doing something, you'll never get to a place where you're able to build something effective. You'll forever be just kind of wandering around lost in the forest of, well, maybe this will work. Maybe that'll work. Maybe, maybe this, maybe this will be the right choice. But if you have a philosophy that tells you, no, this is how this works. This is how this is organized. This is the outcome that you will get if you take these actions. Then you can have a concerted motion towards something that you want, whereas before you'd just be wandering endlessly. And I think that this theory of consciousness is one that gives you that. And I'm, I'm very yes. grateful for it. Yes. It, it, responsibility for your own purpose is, is the key to higher intelligence greater compassion, all of these. I mean, this, we see this throughout the history of mind. It's not just humans. Just as they got, as the mind developed mechanisms for responsibility, usually these are feedback mechanisms. Uh, you know, if, if you get down to the physical basis of it, it's some sort of feedback mechanism that then allows you to calibrate what you've just done. But you need to have, at our level, it is responsibility. It's conscious responsibility for the actions we take, which is analogous to what our neurons do at lower levels. But that, that is the key, you know, and you keep developing that accountability, that responsibility on ever greater levels. That's individual maturity. You know, as we do that within ourselves, we become individually more mature. And as society does it, then society, the supermind becomes more mature too. But I, I couldn't agree more. I love that. Yeah, man. Ogie, this is really cool. I'm really glad we met you. I, several of the points that have come up today, I feel like are the first time that I've actually been locked up with somebody in terms of understanding nature completely. <laughs> and uh, well, that's, awesome. that, that's, that's high that's praise. A, he's, he's very disagreeable. I'm, I'm pretty much 99% <laughs> disagreeable. Um, so it's been, it's been a real pleasure to meet you. And I, I hope that we can stay in touch and um, yeah, maybe, maybe do catch up down the road after we go talk to some other researchers and, and play with these ideas a bit. Um, you have a book. You have a book out, right? It's uh, can you can you tell people the name of your book? We'll put a link to it in the description. Sure, you I have actually a few have two books, books out yeah. right now. The, the one I've been talking about is called Journey of the Mind, which explains how consciousness works in easy, accessible probe. We wrote it so that anybody can read it. You don't need to be a scientist. Don't need any science or math background. I also have another book out right now called This Is What It Sounds Like. I wrote that with Susan Rogers. She was the first successful female music producer, record producer, who came up on the engineering side. She got her start engineering Purple Rain for Prince, which is one of the most successful albums of all time. So in that book, she shares, she was a record producer. She had a number one 
hit song with uh, Bare Naked Ladies, very successful record producer career. Then in her 40s, she got a PhD in neuroscience, became a music cognition researcher. So our book explains why we love the music we do. We each have our own individual music tastes. Our book explains why that is neurally. uses a lot of the stuff about the brain and consciousness that I've been talking about on the show. But we get down to the nitty gritty like exactly what causes one person to like the Beatles and another person to like the Rolling Stones or Taylor Swift or whatever it is. What's going on? How does all that work? Why are we conscious of music? And, and what does this give us? And it's really just a celebration of music. So that book is also uh, available too. That's fantastic. Yeah, that sounds right up our alley. That, that's great. Yeah. So I, I hope we can talk again down the down the line. Love to. What are you working on next? Guys. I'm working on a book right now about extraterrestrials. So, oh. uh, perfect. <laughs> Hopefully that'll come out by the end of the year. Maybe we can come on again and, and come on and talk about that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah that I, I, there's so many points we didn't even get to about that. We we had an amazing conversation with Diana Pasoka. Do you know her? No. Okay, no. but she she was bringing in a lot of these same ideas that extraterrestrial interaction might not come from the skies and a lot of she she interviewed a lot of indigenous cultures and it seems like in her research anyways that that understanding was baked into a lot of the ancestral traditions that hey the these things these these internets and chat gpts these are these are these are the emergence of those extraterrestrial intelligences. And anyways, maybe we can talk about that next time. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to. Cool, man. Love to talk about extraterrestrials. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to that and we'll, uh, we'll stay tuned and re- and check that book out when it comes. Terrific. Thank you so much. Well, thank it's you guys. Wonderful. This was an utter joy, real pleasure. I love talking to both of you. And you know, I'd be delighted to come back. This is just great fun. Wonderful talking to you. Fantastic. We'll have you back soon. Right. All right. Have a great rest of your day, sir. Thank you so much. Yeah. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.